In Texas, Governor Greg Abbott has told his fellow Republicans that the state must reassess the twin issues of school safety and mass violence. One of the topics he wants addressed, firearm safety. The town of Uvalde has begun to bury the victims of the school shootings, 11 funerals this week. It's Wednesday, the 1st of June, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a growing number of schools have adopted an evidence-based approach to preventing violence on their campuses. It starts with the premise that a student contemplating violence is a student in crisis. In Los Angeles, schools will now teach more kids who are deaf or hard of hearing to become bilingual in spoken English and American Sign Language. What LA Unified School District is doing right now is groundbreaking. I think it's historical. And it's definitely controversial. We'll hear why. It's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A high-profile defamation court battle rooted in allegations of domestic violence is over between actors Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Moments ago, a Virginia jury sided with Depp, mostly. Jurors found Depp's ex-wife defamed him in a Washington Post op-ed piece in which she wrote about being a survivor of abuse. Depp sued for $50 million. Today, he got $15 million. Heard countersued for $100 million. Today, the jury awarded her $2 million. Visceral reactions erupted on social media, not only in favor of Depp, but specifically against Heard. Debate over the case amplified by the impact of the Me Too movement that advocated for survivors of abuse to speak out. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz has been following the case and she speaks to the implications of it. For those watching the high-profile defamation case, it came down to much more than just the cash. It was a case played out on social media. Early Wednesday, responses were pouring in on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Advocates for domestic abuse victims say this will have a major impact on survivors and when people report on abuse. Heard testified she was abused by Depp. But for Depp supporters, the verdict was something to celebrate. Outside the courtroom, cheers and celebrations were captured on camera. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz reporting. The Uvalde community saying its goodbyes to Robb Elementary School teacher Irma Garcia, who was among the 21 people killed in the mass shooting last week, and her husband Joe Garcia, who died just two days later of a heart attack. Today, police and civilians on motorcycles led the procession as the Garcia's coffins arrived at Sacred Heart Catholic Church. The U.S. is sending another package of weapons and equipment to Ukraine, including advanced rocket systems. NPR's Jackie Northam reports Secretary of State Antony Blinken says this shipment of security assistance worth $700 million is for defense purposes only. Secretary Blinken says this latest round of weapons are the most advanced provided to Ukraine in the four-month-old war. He says the sophisticated weapons bound for Ukraine will help repel Russian aggression and put Ukraine in a better position at the negotiating table, but will not be used to launch offensive attacks. The Ukrainians have given us assurances that uh, they will not use these systems against targets on Russian territory. Uh, There is a strong trust bond between Ukraine and the United States as well as with uh, our allies and partners. This latest tranche of weaponry brings a total U.S. military assistance to Ukraine to roughly $4.6 billion. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Washington. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is down 177 points at the close, roughly half a percent, ending the day at 32,812. 
You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. We're nearing the traditional end of peak influenza activity in Massachusetts, but a delayed flu season this year has kept the virus around longer than usual. WBUR's Jack Mitchell reports it's another atypical year for the flu against the backdrop of the COVID pandemic. Flu typically thrives in winter, and as you would expect in early June, state data show patient visits for influenza-like illness are falling. But the rate of those visits is still higher than past flu seasons at this time of year. Dr. Daniel Karitskis leads the Infectious Disease Division at Brigham and Women's Hospital. We certainly have a very small number of cases. It's just that in terms of how the peak is forming, it's been a bit more delayed and a little bit more prolonged than in the past. Karitska says restrictions during the winter COVID surge put a damper on flu during its normal peak period from January to March. Federal data show influenza is the ninth leading cause of death in Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jack Mitchell. A federal jury has found a Rhode Island man guilty of killing a young mother who was celebrating her 23rd birthday at a Boston nightclub in 2019. Louis Coleman III was convicted of kidnapping that resulted in the death of Jazzy Correa. Prosecutors say Coleman lured Correa into his car after he promised her a ride home and then sexually assaulted and strangled her. Correa's body was found in a suitcase in the trunk of his car in Delaware four days later. A state legislative committee voiced concern today over proposed east-west passenger rail service. Some lawmakers say Governor Charlie Baker's nearly $10 billion infrastructure bond bill is missing details about creation of a rail authority to oversee the project. Funding would rely heavily on federal grants the state must match. Legislative leaders have given no indication on when they intend to bring the bill up for a vote. In the forecast, pretty wet out there right now for this first day of June. Showers should continue tonight. Temperatures holding steady in the mid-50s. Clouds press on tomorrow. Should be drier, though, a little bit warmer, up around 65 degrees. Rain likely again on Friday. Highs about 60. 55 degrees now in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive info sent online can lead to identity theft. Learn more at lifelock.com NPR. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The story of what happened in Uvalde, Texas, leading up to and during a mass shooting that killed 19 children and two adults, well, it's a story that keeps on changing. In the last couple days, there have been new developments and prior law enforcement statements are being walked back. NPR's Laura Benchoff is in Uvalde and brings us the latest. Hi, Laura. Hi, Elsa. So I want to talk first about how this gunman got into the school. Like the original story was that a teacher had left a back door open, right? What do we know now about that? Right. At a press conference last Friday, the Texas Department of Public Safety had said the gunman entered Rob Elementary through a door that this teacher had left something in to keep it from locking behind her. Now they're saying that's not true. DPS confirmed to NPR that video footage showed the teacher running back inside and closing the door. Mm. She's hired an attorney named Don Flannery to speak on her behalf. And here's how he relays her version of what happened after she saw the gunman crash his car near the school. And then she looks over and sees him throw a backpack over the fence and then sees him with the AR-15 slung over his shoulder 
sees him hop the fence and start running towards her. So she immediately ran back inside, kicked the rock out, and slammed the door. So state officials confirmed that, and now they're saying that the door did not lock as it was supposed to behind her. Wow, very different story. Okay, so can you tell us anything more about this teacher? I know her name hasn't been released, but what else do we know about her experience that day? You know, Flannery shared that she's also a victim, that she hid, terrified, in a classroom across the hall from where the gunman had shot and killed so many people, and that she was there to hear it all. So she was there and she had family members in the school. Her grandson attended Robb Elementary School. And so she was fearful for his safety as well the whole time. And Flannery wanted to share that, you know, getting kind of wrongly blamed just at first for letting the gunman in just made things worse for her. She was devastated because in addition to everything she's going through, even the suggestion that of something that's false, it's insult to injury, you know? Yeah, I imagine so. Well, you know, Laura, all of this gets at the lasting harm these changing statements from law enforcement can cause. And, I mean, state officials originally praised the local law enforcement response, but then days later started blaming the local school police for mishandling it. And now I understand that they have accused the chief of that police force of not cooperating. Right. There's a bit of back and forth happening right now. So the Texas Department of Public Safety shared a statement with NPR saying, All the local law enforcement is cooperating with their investigation, except they say the school district police chief, P. Arredondo. They say he hasn't responded to a request for a second interview for their investigation. You know, this is after the DPS director, Stephen McCraw, said last week that Arredondo made the wrong decision not to enter the classroom when the gunman was there. So CNN confronted the chief just this morning, and he said then that they've been in touch. We've been in contact with DPS every day, just so you all know. They say, you're every not, day. They say that you're not cooperating. I've, I've been on the phone with them every day. So this investigation is ongoing. And, you know, at the same time, the funerals are still happening here. That is NPR's Laura Benchoff in Uvalde. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. So the school shooting in Uvalde has once again left many people asking, how do we prevent the next one? And while lawmakers debate new gun policies as a solution, many school districts have been working hard to steer young people away from violence. Youth like Mishka, a young man in Salem, Oregon, who had made disturbing threats to his high school on social media, were not going to use his full name to protect his privacy. As NPR Ritu Chatterjee reports, the intervention had turned Mishka around, offers hope for other trouble kids. Back in 2011, psychologist John Van Drill got a phone call from Oregon's North Salem High School. It was an assistant principal telling him that a student had written an angry, violent Facebook post. There were a number of statements about hitting people with pipes, breaking knees, uh, bashing heads with pipes, looking for help in doing so. And then there was this. North Salem High School, seriously, it's asking for a shooting or something. Vandril's job is to keep schools safe. He directs the Safety and Risk Management Program for Salem-Kaiser Public Schools. He says he knew of this kid. Mishka was was known to be pretty aggressive and combative. There was enough history here to suggest that if we didn't intervene very quickly, that we would have a pretty bad situation on our hands at North High. By the time Vandriel arrived at the school that day, 
police officers had already pulled Mishka out of class. I'm in handcuffs. Surrounded by police. I got searched several times. And they asked the 17-year-old lots of questions. The police would start asking me questions like, hey, so what's going on? What's happening? They asked me, like, well, like was I actually intending to do something? And it's like, nope, just blowing off steam. Mishka was angry, really angry. That's because he says two of his friends had been jumped by some jocks. My buddies got beat up, quite literally, they got beat up. My buddies got suspended for that. He thought this was unfair. He says his friends didn't start the fight. And in his Facebook post, he was trying to avenge them. Van Drill knew that to calm Mishka down, he had to see the world through his eyes. He's the one justifying the violence, and I have to get behind that and see why. He learned that Mishka's struggle started way back in middle school. One day, Mishka says, a kid tried to pick a fight. As I was turning around and saying, dude, I don't want to fight, he takes a swing and hits me directly in my eye where everything just went black for a moment. Like, and I got mad and it turned into a physical fight. That was probably the first time I actually punched a person. His right eye was severely damaged. He says the next two years, he was in and out of surgery. I started failing majority of my classes. I wasn't able to follow along. I was I literally had to stand up like a foot away from the what's on the board because everything was just a haze. Like I couldn't see anything. Eventually, he says he lost all sight in that eye. And the attacks on him, they continued. In seventh grade, Mishka says a group of boys jumped him. He says he told the school which students did it and they were suspended. But when they came back, they got even more of their buddies and on the way home, I literally just got bluntly attacked and just I was literally just laying there in the dirt in the mud and I was getting kicked like I was a soccer ball. He says he ended up with an abdominal injury and more surgery. That is actually like the point where I was like done with everything and everyone. And I'm like, none of you could protect me, so I don't care about what you guys see. I don't care about your rules, whether you're wearing a police uniform, military, whether you're the president or God himself. And that's where I became, like, a loose cannon. Mishka spent his high school years getting in one fight after another. He saw himself as a victim who was going to pay some people back so that this injustice didn't continue. And that's that righteous indignation that can drive these kinds of assaults. Then came senior year and that Facebook post. North Salem High School, seriously. It sounded like a serious threat. But Van Driel and his team realized that Mishka had no intentions of shooting anyone. Still, he was angry and volatile. Van Driel listened to Mishka when he explained why. Teachers weren't reaching out to kids who needed the help. There weren't the connections. There was the pecking order and the injustice. They decided to give Mishka another chance and moved him to a smaller school, Roberts High, where teachers gave him the attention and help he wanted and where he found his first real mentor. Stanley Roberts, a behavioral analyst at the school. Robert says he remembers Mishka in those early days. A kid shy and hiding. Didn't say much. He just walked through the hall with his head down. Didn't want to be noticed. Maybe hurting. And it's like, well, hey, let's talk. Roberts invited him to stop by his office anytime. And Mishka did. At first, he was hesitant. Started out a young boy or young man trying to prove himself. And I think it was just more of a, you know, where do I fit in? 
always having to fight and just being angry at, you know, at the world. It's not fair. And I just listened. Then, after a while, Robert started pushing back. Did Mishka want to be that guy who's angry and fighting all the time? Is this what you want? No. Um, well, what do you want? Why well, can't just walk away from it? I'm like, but as you get older, you can. You don't have to stay in that. Roberts helped Mishka find other ways to solve his problems. It was like having his own personal coach. Somebody to be there for, uh, like, if I do need to turn, like, hey, what do I do now? Knowing that there is going to be somebody there saying, hey, this is what you do now. Mishka graduated from high school on time. Today he has a full-time job and enjoys baking when he isn't working. He's far from the angry kid he used to be. John Van Drill has worked with over a thousand at-risk kids, collaborating with families, police, schools, mental health professionals. He says this is how you move kids away from violence, through safe environments, connections, role models. Moving kids from despair to hope. That's the bumper sticker for what we do. Is that all it takes? It sounds like almost too simplistic to be true. Well, it is not. It really works. After the school shooting in Parkland, Florida in 2018, Congress designated money to set up more programs like this in schools around the country. Ritu Chatterjee, NPR News. As the British public celebrates Queen Elizabeth's 70 years on the throne, many are looking towards the future and the next monarch, Prince Charles. Listen tomorrow afternoon to hear why his treatment of Princess Diana and his past reputation for meddling in public issues has earned him many detractors. Tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, as all things considered, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. travels to the Turkey-Syria border to remind the world of the need for continued aid for Syrians who remain mired in conflict. I'm Lisa Mullins checking business news today. A downward start to the new month on Wall Street. The Dow fell about a half percent, or 177 points, to close at 32,813. S&P lost three-quarters of a percent to close at 41.01. The Nasdaq lost nearly three-quarters of a percent to end the day at 11,994. Business news on Marketplace comes up at 6.30. It's now 4.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Make your dreams a priority with a part-time MBA from Babson. Ranked the top Northeast Graduate School for Entrepreneurship by the Princeton Review and Entrepreneur Magazine. Attend online or in person. Apply by June 24th for scholarship consideration for fall 2022. Babson.edu part-time. The gym in downtown Brockton, where boxing champion marvelous Marvin Hagler used to practice, is being transformed into a luxury apartment building. Mass Development announced today it's provided $6.5 million in loans to transform the vacant, historic four-story building that used to house the Petronelli Gym. Construction is expected to be complete by December. The forecast is next. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios designed to help create a healthy planet and just society. Zevin.com slash WBUR. And Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, 
family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. Pretty wet out there this afternoon. Wet weather continues overnight tonight. Should be in the mid-50s, which is where it is right now. Tomorrow, cloudy and dry, up around 64 degrees. Again, 55 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of a Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. The civil war in Syria may have dropped from the headlines, but after more than a decade, it is still not over. Today, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, is near the Syrian border in Turkey. She's there to remind the world that there are still millions of people inside Syria who depend on U.N. aid. The government of Bashar al-Assad has retaken most of the country, but a few million people still live in an opposition-controlled region near the Turkish border. NPR's Michelle Kellerman is traveling with the ambassador and joins us from southern Turkey. Hey, Michelle. Hi there. So can you talk more about what prompted Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield to take this trip now in particular? So there's a deadline next month for the U.N. Security Council to renew an aid program from Turkey to Syria. We're talking about hundreds of trucks a day, food, medicine, and other supplies that cross a part of the Syrian border that's controlled by opposition forces. Syria's government opposes this aid route, calling it a breach of sovereignty. Russia, which has veto power on the Security Council, is an ally of Syria, so it could block this aid route when it comes up for a vote next month. And U.S. officials say that could cut off, you know, about four million Syrians that really depend on these U.N. aid shipments. And by the way, they can't rely on the Syrian government and Russia aiding them because those countries have a record of trying to starve out opposition areas in the country. Okay, well, who has Thomas Greenfield been meeting with while she's been on the ground there? So, so far, she's been meeting mostly with Syrian refugees, including um, an aid group known as the White Helmets. She's also met with some small business owners from Syria. The ambassador says she heard some similar concerns from many of them today. Take a listen. The main message is uh, we are hearing from our relatives inside of Syria. Uh, They are. Uh, suffering, and we don't want to be forgotten. And I think the message they have heard from me is that we have not forgotten uh, Syria, and that's why I'm here. And by the way, she was speaking there inside this sweet shop run by three Syrian brothers. There was baklava and other amazing Mm. sweets piled high behind (laughs) her. Yes, we got a taste of it. (laughs) And Thomas Greenfield was making a point of showing that refugees can contribute to countries like Turkey. That's an important message because a lot of Turkish citizens are growing weary of hosting so many refugees when the economy is in turmoil. Well, you mentioned that she met members of the White Helmets. This is the rescue group that operates in opposition areas and has received backing from the U.S. in the past. And I'm curious, what was their message to the ambassador and to the rest of the world? 
Well, they worry that Ukraine is taking the focus off of Syria. We spoke to one board member, Amara Al-Samu, who says that Russian troops are doing the same things in Ukraine as they did in Syria. Just take a listen. It's connected, I think. The, the war in Syria and the war, war in Ukraine is connected. It's one war against a human being, against people who want uh, their, their dignity, who want their freedom. This is one war. So now the question is whether Russia is going to allow aid to flow into Syria from Turkey for another year. It's going to be a big challenge for U.N. diplomats. There's another concern, Elsa, and that is about a potential Turkish offensive against Kurdish forces in northern Syria. That's just a reminder of how complicated this war is and how tenuous the situation is. That is NPR's Michelle Kellerman on the Turkey-Syria border. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you. Now let's turn to Title 42. It's the pandemic border restriction President Trump implemented two years ago to block most migration from Mexico. The Biden administration tried to lift it, but a federal judge recently ordered the policy to stay in place. Even so, the border is not totally closed. Asylum seekers are still crossing, and at least one shelter for them in Arizona is seeing record numbers. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports. Ever since he was a boy in the border city of Nogales, Santa Cruz County Sheriff David Hathaway says people have been crossing over looking for a better life. Only recently has this become red meat for national politicians. You know, over past multiple years, caravans staging in Mexico and they're heading this way and they're going to rush across the border and it's going to be a mass invasion. It's never materialized the way they describe it. Today in this high desert, it's quiet. There you go, that's Mexico right there. Hathaway is a former DEA agent in Nogales and in South America, but he dresses more like the Old West. Cowboy hat, suspenders, keychain dangling off his belt. Down this dirt road, he points to a section of newer border fence with its coils of razor wire dangling off the American side. Construction stopped when Donald Trump left office. So then it kind of just went back to this vehicle barrier type fencing that anybody can just walk through. You could just walk right under that. And people are. Under Title 42, most Mexicans and Central Americans who are caught are sent back immediately, but there are exceptions. 70 miles to the north, the Casa Alita shelter in Tucson is seeing a record number of asylum seekers, even a few days after a federal judge kept the closures at southern ports of entry in place. And the reason we're registering you is so that we can take you to the airport or to the bus station and help you with transportation. 375 people are arriving today. They look exhausted. They're drinking water and carrying their belongings in plastic bags. The shelter's director, Teresa Cavendish, says it's probably the first time they've felt safe in ages. Something caused them to leave their homes. Whatever that something was, was traumatic and and dangerous to them. And then they've spent time on the U.S.-Mexico border, a very unsafe space to be in. There's a lot of global instability and violence, especially since the pandemic. And Cavendish is preparing this shelter to handle up to 1,000 people a day. We are continuing to move forward. This, this pause in Title 42, we believe is just that, a pause. Most of the people arriving here now are from countries like Cuba, Venezuela, and Colombia, where immigration authorities cannot easily return them to their home countries or to Mexico. Speaking through an interpreter, Wilmar Romero says he had to leave Colombia because an armed gang made a threat to his family. 
They flew to Mexico City, then it was a three-day bus ride to Mexicali. Then they crossed at a known gap in the border fence near Yuma, Arizona. Romero's story is typical according to aid workers. Once he crossed, he waited to surrender at a place the Border Patrol tends to pick migrants up and eventually was brought to this shelter. A lot of the humanitarian support here is coming from federal funding, much of which is set to run out at the end of next month. Regina Romero is the mayor of Tucson. I'm concerned that Congress will not allocate funding for a mess in terms of a broken immigration system that they refuse to fix. Romero says it's ironic that Republicans sued to keep a public health order in place. For example, Attorney General Brnovich here of Arizona was fighting cities like Tucson when we were instituting uh, public health measures to protect our communities from COVID-19. The Republican AG declined interview requests, but in a statement called the judge's ruling keeping Title 42 in place a win. Back in Nogales, Santa Cruz County Sheriff David Hathaway says Title 42 is only adding to the backlog of asylum cases in U.S. courts. If someone at the cabinet level in the Biden administration heard this, that's what I would say. Get the deciding officials that make these decisions right at the border, have a line where they immediately decide the cases. The Biden administration has just launched a small program to start doing that, but it may not survive a court challenge. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Nogales. This is NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, a good book for whatever state you may be traveling to this summertime. Red Sox look to bounce back from last night's loss to the Cincinnati Reds. Their two-game series ends at Fenway Park tonight. Garrett Whitlock takes the mound for the Sox. It's Hunter Green for the Reds. You're part of the WBUR community, and that is why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's Tuesday, June 7th at 8.30 a.m., you can find details at wbur.org slash open meetings. Showers overnight tonight. Temperatures just about where they are now in the mid-50s. For tomorrow, cloudy and drier. Temperatures in the mid-60s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning, coaching, and yoga. SemesterOff.com And Sunbug Solar, offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at SunbugSolar.com. It's the trickle-down effect of inflation. Food costs more. People are able to donate less when others need it most. Food banks are feeling the squeeze while filling boxes for those in need. They might be putting in a little bit less in order to make sure that they're stretching their inventory. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Russian forces are pushing their assault on the city of Severodonetsk in eastern Ukraine, although Ukrainian troops continue to put up stiff resistance. NPR's Ryan Lucas has more. Regional Governor Sergei Hadai says that Russia now controls around 70 percent of Severodonetsk. He says some Ukrainian forces have retreated to fortified positions outside the city, while others continue to battle the Russians in street fighting inside the city. Weeks of shelling and now Russia's assault have gutted Severodonetsk, and residents who have fled say much of it lies in ruins. The city's importance stems in part 
from the fact that it has been the last major urban center in the Luhansk region to remain in Ukrainian hands. Russia's push to capture the city is part of the Kremlin's broader offensive in eastern Ukraine, which is the site of the heaviest fighting right now in the war. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Kyiv. President Biden says the U.S. is getting more shipments of baby formula from Europe amid an ongoing shortage that has parents scrambling to feed their babies. There's nothing more stressful than the feeling you can't get what your child needs, he or she needs. And it's why I've directed my administration to use every tool available to increase the supply, get more formula on shelves as quickly as possible. The White House says enough Kenda Mill formula to fill millions of bottles will arrive in the U.S. over the next three weeks. Biden met with leaders of five companies that make baby formula today. It's been in short supply since the FDA shut down one of Abbott Labs' plants over concerns about contamination Abbott nutrition. And Johnny Depp has largely won his defamation suit against ex-wife Amber Heard, claiming she defamed him by alleging domestic abuse. A jury today awarded Depp $15 million in damages. Depp sued her for $50 million, and she countersued for $100 million. The jury awarded her $2 million in damages. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Hundreds of local 26 union workers protested along Boylston Street in Boston this afternoon in opposition to the potential sale of the Heinz Convention Center. The Heinz is owned by the state. Governor Charlie Baker has proposed selling it as part of his economic development bill. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer has more. Supporters of the plan say selling the Heinz would fund much-needed projects in downtown Boston, like affordable housing. Proceeds would also fund an expansion of Boston's other convention center in the seaport. But Daryl Singletary, who's been working at the Heinz for 36 years, says a sale would be economically devastating for him and 200 of his colleagues. And for the state to sell the Heinz, it's going to really cripple a lot of families. Jobs are not knocking on your door when you're 55 and 50-plus paying you the money that we're getting now. So people, a lot of people are definitely nervous about them selling the Heinz. The legislature would need to approve Baker's proposal before any sale could take place. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. U.S. Secretary of Labor and former Boston Mayor Marty Walsh has COVID. Walsh says he's been vaccinated and boosted and is only experiencing mild symptoms. He says he's isolating and following CDC guidelines. The North Atlantic hurricane season is officially underway as of today. The Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency has been conducting preparation exercises with other states and local communities. MEMA spokesman Chris Bessie says coastal residents can find out if they live in an area that's prone to flooding state has hurricane evacuation zones. Uh, we have maps and resources on our website, mass.gov slash MEMA. Uh, but people can, can use that to kind of determine their risk and therefore the fact that they may need to evacuate if there was a significant uh, storm or hurricane coming up the coast. Bessie says only one hurricane affected the state last summer when Henri moved up the coast before it shifted inland. It's 434. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where specialists in your type of cancer create personalized care plans just for you. Learn more at youhaveus.org. And Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge, powering possibilities. Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. Afternoon showers morph into overnight showers. We should have some gusty winds tonight. Lows about 55, right where it is right now, in fact. Tomorrow, no showers forecast. Just lots of clouds around should make it to the mid-60s. This is WBUR. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. From Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. In Los Angeles, schools will now teach more kids who are deaf or hard of hearing to become bilingual in both spoken English and American Sign Language. It's a new chapter in an old debate, as Kyle Stokes of member station KPCC reports. At one and a half years old, David Sanchez received his first cochlear implant, and in hearing classrooms, his teachers wanted him to use that implant. Here he is speaking through an interpreter. I remember in preschool, if I signed, my teacher would hit me on the wrist. Sanchez could hear sound through the implant, but he couldn't process it fast enough to keep up with his teachers. When he got older, Sanchez joined a program that embraced his use of American Sign Language, or ASL. As Sanchez addressed a recent meeting of the Los Angeles Unified School Board, he switched from signing his testimony to speaking it aloud. Most people think that deaf people whose ASL do not speak. This is not true. Learning ASL has helped my English skills and speech skills. Advocates say schools should embrace this approach. It's called ASL English Bilingual Education. And at the meeting where Sanchez spoke, the L.A. school board voted to expand its use. All deaf babies in the district can receive services through public schools from birth. And up to age three, they'll now be placed into a bilingual program by default. This change chips away at what some advocates say is a deep-seated bias against teaching ASL in schools. What L.A. Unified School District is doing right now is groundbreaking. I think it's historical. Wyatt Hall is an assistant professor at University of Rochester Medical Center. Through an interpreter, Hall says that for too long, schools have put too much faith into hearing aids or implants. Even the best cochlear implant technology today is not a cure. It does not make deaf people hearing. There's always a limitation of some kind. The very earliest a baby can receive a cochlear implant is at nine months old, meaning they've missed a big chunk of the window in which the growing brain develops language. So scholars like Hall say schools should expose deaf children to both ASL and spoken English rather than gamble that children will pick up on spoken language alone. There are these stars who do very well, and you can hardly tell that they're deaf at all. They have an implant, they speak very well, but most do not. At the center of the debate is a deeply personal choice. Many in the deaf community consider ASL to be their natural language, and suppressing that language is the same as suppressing deaf culture. Most deaf children are also born outside that culture to hearing parents, some of whom fear that because they can't sign, they'll be unable to communicate with their own kids, depriving them of all early language exposure. I thought that that my baby is going to be able to communicate only with sign language. Marcella Aquino has two daughters who are deaf. My family, they don't even speak English, so I knew that it's going to be hard. 
Her daughters both received cochlear implants, and Aquino also fought to get them both into a school that specializes in spoken language. Now her younger daughter, Michelle Ugalde, is comfortable relying on her implants in school. Since people like consider my voice clear and understandable, almost like a hearing person, when I don't tell anyone that I'm deaf, I can kind of like understand things from a hearing person's perspective. Neither Michelle nor her sister Chelsea learned sign language growing up, though they're learning a little now. Chelsea feels like they straddle two different worlds. I know I'm deaf. No one can prove anything else. To supporters of spoken language, students like Chelsea and Michelle are proof of how good hearing technology has gotten, and they worry that by adopting a bilingual approach, schools are downplaying the possibilities that those technologies have unlocked. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Stokes in Los Angeles. It is June, and all across the country, the school year is winding down and the summer travel season is revving up. And if you are planning a trip and want to learn more about your destination, we have got a great resource for you. My colleagues at the Culture Desk have put together a list of more than 100 book recommendations that cover all 50 states, plus Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico. Here to tell us more about this project is Maureen Pau, an editor who helped put that list all together. Hey, Maureen. Hey, Elsa. So tell us more about how you guys came up with this huge list. Yeah, it was a massive undertaking. We asked poet laureates, librarians, and booksellers for their recommendations for the books that best illustrate their state or territory work that tells us something essential about where they live. Was there anything that you're going to definitely be adding to your personal reading list? Yes. From the South, I'm excited to check out a volume of poetry that was a recommendation of Catherine Pierce. She's the Poet Laureate of Mississippi, and she suggested Native Guard. Uh, that's by former U.S. Poet Laureate Natasha Trethaway. And the collection's named for the Regiment of Black Soldiers Who Fought for the Union, and in uh, Native Guard, Trethway weaves their history in with her own memories of growing up in Mississippi. Then from out west, another one that caught my eye was from Nevada's poet laureate, Gail Marie Palmeyer. She recommended a volume that's called How the Light Gets In by a poet named Kirk Robertson. And Palmeyer told NPR that Robertson's poetry made her see how the state's starkly beautiful desert is both brutal and tender and how his work inspired her to make Nevada her home. Well, apart from poetry, what other kinds of books did people recommend? We got a lot of recommendations for books that were by and about Native people, and this was both fiction and nonfiction and also poetry, actually. There are memoirs from Alaska. We have a book called Blonde Indian by Ernestine Hayes, and that book traces her roots to a Lingat village in Juneau and also ties in, sort of intersperses Native stories throughout her personal narrative. And um, there's also uh, short story collections. Uh, there's one called The Bead Workers by Beth Piatote, and that's a recommendation from Idaho. Those stories capture how the Nez Perce people have held on to their culture and their bonds with family and nature. There are also books by and about Native people in Colorado, Hawaii, Maine, Montana, New Mexico, <laughs> North Dakota. 
Wisconsin and really like from all corners of the country. I so love that. Just a lot to discover. I mean, this is an enormous list of books. And I'm sure there are a lot of people out <laughs> there who will take a look at this and think, hey, they should have included this other book from my state instead. Uh, like just speaking for myself, I see there's one recommendation for California where I'm from, a novel called Mary Coyne by Marissa Silver. I've never read that novel. I'm sure it's great. But I would also love to recommend Fiona and Jane, a novel by Jean Chen Ho. It's about an incredible lifelong friendship between two Asian-American women growing up in Southern California. Absolutely adored that book. Yeah, that actually sounds amazing to me. And, <laughs> you know, you raise a really good point. This We should think about this list as sort of a starting point. And really, in fact, we want to hear from NPR listeners, who we know are very opinionated about this kind of thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so you can do just that at our website. Um, you can submit your picks. And you can also check out all 100-plus book recommendations for all the 50 states and beyond. Uh, that is all at our website, npr.org slash 50 states. That is NPR's Maureen Powell. Thank you so much, Maureen. Thank you, Elsa. It's my pleasure. And this is NPR News. Look at a map of the United States, and there's a clear line between Michigan and Indiana. But in reality, the actual border between the two states has been unsettled for decades. For member station WVPE, Jacob Lazaro explains why and what's being done to fix it. Michigan borders three states, Indiana, Wisconsin, and Ohio. And that Ohio border has been the most controversial by far. In 1835, the two sides nearly went to war for control over the Toledo Strip. And one century later, Michigan and Wisconsin went to the Supreme Court to settle a border dispute in the Upper Peninsula. But the Michigan-Indiana border is different. I called it the quiet border because nothing ever comes up. That's Jack Owens, a semi-retired surveyor who's been advocating for a modern retracing of the border for 20 years now. He says because of those past controversies, Michigan's Ohio and Wisconsin borders were resurveyed in the early 20th century and staked with durable markers of concrete or stone. In contrast, the Indiana border has not. It was last surveyed in 1827. The team placed wooden posts every mile to mark the border, recording the locations using two reference trees and any notable topographic features like lakes or streams. But those posts have long since rotted away, leaving the state border unclear. Everybody's got an idea where it is. It's just, you know, if you had to know exactly, you know, we can't tell you. Jack Owens took up the issue 20 years ago when he gathered a group of surveyors. One of them, John Comer, says one of the reasons a modern border survey is needed is because surveyors in 1827 were limited by equipment and the terrain. To illustrate that, he pulls out a record of an 1885 survey done to determine property lines on some land near Lake Michigan. While not along the state border, County Surveyor Albert Drew still went through quite a lot, battling 25-foot-deep sand drifts and rough terrain thickly filled with trees. And therefore, I depended entirely upon the needle for my course, which would have been his staff compass. What he should have been doing is perpetuating kind of leapfrogging that line along, but he couldn't see back from one to the other to push it forward. In the notes, Drew also offered some advice for future surveyors. And then he says, if it ever becomes necessary to resurvey this section, let me advise the man who undertakes it to get his life insured. John Comer says since most of the original markers are gone, a new survey can only be done through the Supreme Court or the respective state legislatures. So they began lobbying, and their efforts paid off. 
Indiana approved legislation to create a state boundary commission in 2009, and Michigan followed suit in 2011. But Commerce says funding for the surveys never got off the ground, and the commissions eventually dissolved. Now, there's a renewed push. Last month, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer re-established her state's border commission. Indiana did the same thing three years ago. Using a mix of technology like GPS, along with the 1827 notes, the survey will look for the locations of the original markers and set permanent mileposts to give an exact picture of where the border is. But when it's all said and done, any potential differences will not be massive. In places where the border is off, it's likely only by a few feet or a few inches. Most likely not entire houses and definitely not whole towns. So why even bother doing this? When it's your line, and especially if there's a problem, then it's very important. I mean, when I was doing a lot of private practice, people would come in and fight over inches. And even if it's just a few inches, Commerce says people should care about a properly surveyed state border as a matter of state sovereignty. For NPR News, I'm Jacob Lazaro. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, my unsung hero from the team at Hidden Brain tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on somebody. We have a story about travel and what it feels like to be lost. Join us uh, Science Friday, June 15th at WBUR City Space for a celebration of cephalopods. Hear from marine experts and meet a real-life octopus. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. Red Sox look to bounce back from last night's loss to the Cincinnati Reds. Their two-game series ends at Fenway Park tonight. Garrett Whitlock takes the mound for the Sox. It's Hunter Green for the Reds. A dank day for the start to the new month. Showers continue tonight. Windy, just a little bit cooler, about 55 degrees where it is right now. Tomorrow should break into the mid-60s as clouds dominate again. No showers set for tomorrow, but the weather should reappear on Friday with highs about 61. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at MPArchitectsBoston.com. And Empire Loan, with eight New England locations, recognizing Boston Explorers, whose mission provides children ages 7 to 15 the opportunity to explore Boston in an electronic-free setting and learn lifelong skills, committed to ensuring all children have full and equal access to Boston. BostonExplorers.org So, this happened... If you move close ah. enough to it, there you go. And, <laughs> I, just, I just transfigured through the wall. I'm Kai Rizdal. Come with me to the metaverse next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. He wakes up with gum in his hair, slips on his skateboard, gets snubbed by his best friend, and it just gets worse. There were lima beans for dinner, and I hate lima beans. Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day was published 50 years ago today. Judith Viorst's best-selling kids' book has been adapted for stage and screen. It's even been used to teach kids about ethics. NPR's Elizabeth Blair talked to the author and her inspiration. 
Alexander is real. He's Judith Fjord's third son. And I guess in a way the most challenging of them because he did not want to be left out of anything. He was always chugging behind his brother saying, wait for me guys, wait for me guys, and there he is now. Alexander Elizabeth Blair. Hi, Elizabeth. Nice to meet you. Sitting outside on Alexander Vior's front porch in Washington, D.C., we do a little truth squatting. Gum in your hair ever happened? Never happened. Did you like lima beans? I don't think I had any direct hostility to lima beans. But Judith Viorst, who seems a lot younger than her 91 years, says Alexander was something of a klutz when he was little. The famous klutz story about Alexander is him limping home from school one day and saying, my knee, my knee, I killed my knee. And I said, oh my God, poor baby in soccer. And he said, no, story time. By 1972, Viorst had already written a couple of children's books. One was about sibling rivalry called I'll Fix Anthony. She wrote Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day for Alexander, thinking it would cheer him up. She read him the manuscript. And he got furious with me. He said, why are you giving me this bad day? Why don't you give it to Nick? Why don't you give it to Tony? Why me? He didn't think it was at all amusing, and I said, I can uh, change it to Stanley and the Terrible Horrible or Walter and the... And then I did this, you know, totally manipulative mommy thing. But of course your name won't be in great big letters on the front of the book. So uh, at that point he decided to keep it Alexander. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, horrible. No, no good, bad, bad, bad day. In Summit, New Jersey, Ariel Sykes is reading and discussing Alexander with a group of second graders at the Kent Place School. They let me observe via Zoom. Sykes is the assistant director of the school's Ethics Institute. She uses Viewers' book to get kids to consider how they would act if they were in Alexander's shoes. What do you think is the right thing to do when you're having a bad day? <coughs> Try to make it better. Try to make better? Yeah, yeah so or, kind of or like you could just deal earlier. with it. What does that mean to just deal with it? Don't really focus on that, focus on good thoughts. Afterwards, one of the students, Arna Siddhaganahali, tells me she was having a bad day because she didn't know what to say during the discussion. But she did have feelings about Alexander's older brother calling him a crybaby. She didn't like it. People cry sometimes. Okay to cry. Ariel Sykes says one of the things she likes about Alexander is that it doesn't judge his behavior. I think it's a good model of how it can be okay to sit with your emotions and that you don't always need to fix things and that having a bad day is just part of life. These days happen to everybody. I think it makes it a lot more tolerable when you think you haven't been singled out. Do you think it's tougher today to be a kid? You know, I think, I think the world has gotten tough, and even if they're not watching the news and reading the incredibly depressing stories, I think it must seep into them. The real Alexander agrees. He has three kids of his own. When they were little, he read them their grandmother's book. This is, you know, a guy who's sort of been in my life forever, and he keeps having crappy days, but I'm going to keep rooting for him, right? Fifty years after it was written, Judith Viorst is grateful Alexander turned out okay. I look at this little fierce tiger of a little boy and I see this loving, benevolent father and head of a family and it's, uh, it thrills me practically every day.
Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. Time now for my unsung hero from the team at Hidden Brain. My unsung hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression. Today, a story about what it feels like to be lost in a new place. It comes from Jamie Spurway of Glasgow, Scotland. In 1998, Jamie flew to the U.S. to study in California, his first time traveling overseas by himself. Luckily, he met a young Irish couple along the way. They were going to Venice Beach, and since Jamie didn't need to be at his final destination till the next day, he decided to tag along. Problem was, none of them knew how to get there. I think we maybe took three or four, maybe even five different bus journeys, possibly going in different directions each time, and always getting instructions from the driver that they would just say a sort of, okay, first of all, you need to take the number 22 down to such and such street. And then you get off there, walk around the block, then take the number 57. To the, it was just an endless list of numbers and names that we didn't fully understand or remember. So we're getting more and more flustered, hotter. We probably hadn't packed much food or water, you know, just not very prepared in, in every respect. So it's not just that we were kind of tired and hungry. There was certainly a level of anxiety growing in our minds as well. And so eventually we decided, okay, we're going to need to just stop and, and try to figure this out properly and buy ourselves a map. So picture three people, two from Ireland and one from Scotland, going into this gas station to then buy a physical map and then stand outside the gas station wearing our backpacks. We could not have made ourselves look more conspicuous if we had tried. So we stood for maybe 10 or 15 minutes and then this young woman comes up to us wearing a T-shirt that said, God answers prayers. Now, I'm not a person of faith, but I admit that in that moment, I did have a sense of, wow, has this person been sent from heaven? Because she just looked at us and said, do you guys need any help? And we enthusiastically say, yes, yes, we absolutely do. And we explained where we were trying to go to. And she said, OK, why don't you just get in the car? My mother and I will take you. And that's what they did. And on the journey, they discovered that, you know, I was going to need to travel to Newport Beach the next day. So they said, well, why don't you just come back and stay with us overnight? So not only did they drop off the Irish couple in Venice Beach, they then drove me back and I stayed with them for a night. They gave me dinner, you know. I think at the time I was probably conscious of being really grateful, but I don't think I really appreciated just how unusual that level of generosity was. I really would like to be able to reach out and thank them because it was a big, big thing that they did for one little Glaswegian lost in L.A. <laughs> Jamie Spurway of Glasgow, Scotland. To share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Two statues of a 10th century prince in two capital cities illustrate the divides between modern-day Ukraine and Russia. To find out who he was and what he signifies today to the people of Kyiv and Moscow, listen to Morning Edition tomorrow. Turn on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Ion Television Network. LeVar Burton hosts the Scripps National Spelling Bee Finals live, Thursday, June 2nd at 8 p.m. Eastern on ION. Learn more at spellingbee.com. From Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, 
Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. From Fisher Investments Wealth Management, offering guidance on retirement income, social security, and estate planning. More at fisherinvestments.com. Clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Light rain off and on tonight. Some gusty winds. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Tomorrow should make it to the mid-60s with a heavy cloud cover. Friday rain returns, topping out at 60 degrees. Then sunshine is waiting in the wings for the weekend. It's up to 60 degrees now in Boston at 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Building Restoration Services, hiring architects, engineers, and estimators to solve complex building envelope problems. BuildingRestorationServices.com. Add MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the new Engineering Design Workshop at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com slash MOS. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's been eight days since the coroner on duty in Uvalde, Texas, was called to the Robb Elementary School after the massacre of 19 children and two teachers. It's something you never want to see. It's a picture that's going to stay in my head forever. A man who worked to help identify the victims coming up. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, President Biden pledges new advanced weapons to Ukraine as the 100-day mark since Russia's invasion nears. A jury has ruled in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial. The mixed results coming up. The plaintiff in the case that established a federal right to same-sex marriage talks about what overturning Roe v. Wade could mean for same-sex marriage. And Facebook's chief operating officer, Sheryl Sandberg, is leaving the company after 14 years. It's 501 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Mourners gathering at a Catholic church in Uvalde, Texas today to pay their final respects to a Robb Elementary School teacher who died in the shooting and her husband who died two days later from a heart attack while visiting his wife's memorial. Irma Garcia was one of two adults shot and killed when an 18-year-old armed with an AR-15 assault-style weapon opened fire at the school, killing them and 19 other children. There have been a stream of visitations, funerals and burials this week there. Meanwhile, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is asking the state legislature to set up special committees in response to last week's school shooting in Uvalde. The Texas Newsroom's Joseph Leahy reports today's request falls short of calls for convening a special session, though. Governor Abbott wants lawmakers in the House and Senate to consider measures on mental health, social media, police training, firearm safety, and school safety. In a letter, he said the two committees will be informed by findings from ongoing investigations into the massacre that killed 19 students and two teachers teachers. Democrats and a few Republican lawmakers have called on Abbott to reconvene the legislature to pass laws before the next session begins in January. The Republican governor on Tuesday declared a disaster in Uvalde to expedite assistance for residents devastated by the tragedy. 
Funerals for the 21 victims, which began Tuesday, are expected to continue into next week. I'm Joseph Leahy in Austin. Reproductive rights advocates are challenging a Florida abortion ban in state court, arguing that even if the U.S. Supreme Court overturns the Roe v. Wade precedent, which guarantees the right to an abortion nationwide, Florida's new abortion law violates the state's constitution. NPR's Sarah McCammon has more. In April, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the law banning most abortions after 15 weeks. It's set to take effect in July, and it's similar to a Mississippi abortion ban currently before the U.S. Supreme Court. Whitney White, an attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union, says Florida's constitution includes an explicit right to privacy that goes beyond the U.S. Constitution. When Floridians amended their state constitution to provide that broader protection for privacy rights, they ensured that abortion rights would remain protected in Florida, independent of federal law. Under the Florida law, healthcare providers could face criminal prosecution and jail time for performing abortions after 15 weeks. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. After a six-week trial that contained lurid details of their time as husband and wife, a Virginia jury today largely sided with actor Johnny Depp in the defamation trial against Amber Heard. Jury finding Heard defamed Depp in a 2018 op-ed, which she referred to herself as a public figure representing domestic abuse. The verdict was Depp awards him $15 million. The jury also found in favor of Heard in her claim, awarding her $2 million. You're listening to... NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Children's Hospital was the target of an Iranian cyber attack last summer. That's according to FBI Director Christopher Wray, who spoke at a cybersecurity conference at Boston College today. Wray calls the planned attack one of the most despicable he's ever seen. Our folks got the hospital's team the information they needed to stop the danger right away. And we were able to help them ID and then mitigate the threat. And quick actions by everyone involved, especially at the hospital, protected both the network and the sick kids. Ray says the FBI and Children's had worked together in 2014 when the hospital's network was hacked, and he said that helped them respond more quickly to the Iranian attack. Several members of the state's congressional delegation are demanding that app-based riots sharing and delivery companies do more to protect the health and safety of their drivers. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey sent letters to CEOs of companies including Uber and DoorDash. They say 50 app-based drivers have been killed on the job in the U.S. since 2017. They also say these types of workers are some of the most vulnerable in the country. The monument across from the Massachusetts State House honoring the 54th Regiment of Massachusetts was rededicated today. About half the members of the all-black regiment under the command of Robert Gould Shaw were killed in the assault on Fort Wagner in South Carolina. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says they were an inspiration and their sacrifice was a rallying cry for Union troops. Today this memorial is an important reminder that the work of justice cannot, must not fall only upon those who suffer most directly under injustices. The $3 million restoration of the 125-year-old monument began in 2019. In the forecast to look for rain off and on tonight, some gusty winds in the mid-50s. Tomorrow should make it to the mid-60s, a heavy cloud cover. Rain returns on Friday, topping out at 60 degrees. Sunshine is ahead for the weekend with temperatures right about 70 degrees. Nice wet seats at Fenway tonight. Reds and Red Sox have a 7-10 start time for the second game in a quick two-game series. Garrett Whitlock pitches for Boston. It'll be Hunter Green for Cincinnati. 60 degrees in Boston now at 5.06. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fisher Investments, wealth management from dedicated advisors that tailor portfolios to each client's unique goals. More at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. June 26, 2015, the Supreme Court ruled same-sex couples have a constitutional right to marriage. A historic day here at the Supreme Court, Jake. The Supreme Court has said there is a constitutional right Excuse me, the same-sex marriage, you can hear the cheer in the crowd. This ruling will strengthen all of our communities by offering to all loving same-sex couples the dignity of marriage across this great land. The four words etched onto the front of the Supreme Court, equal justice under law, apply to us, too. Well, fast forward seven years to a vastly different court and what will be another landmark decision, this time about a federal right to abortion. A leaked draft opinion suggests the court is ready to overturn it. And overturning Roe versus Wade could have implications for other rights based in that decision, including the right to same-sex marriage. Watching closely is Jim Obergefell. He is that celebratory voice you just heard. It was his case, Obergefell versus Hodges, which established a right to same-sex marriage. And he joins me now. Jim Obergefell, welcome. Thank you, Mary Louise. I'm thrilled to be here. Would you begin just by reminding people briefly the story behind your case? So on June 26, 2013, the Supreme Court struck down the Defense of Marriage Act in their decision in United States versus Windsor. And I proposed to my partner, John, and he was dying of ALS and we were in our 20th year together as a couple. And we ended up marrying inside a medical jet in Maryland and we lived in Ohio. And when we learned that John's death certificate would be filled out incorrectly when he died, saying he was single, we decided to sue the state of Ohio and the city of Cincinnati to demand recognition of our lawful out-of-state marriage on John's death certificate at the time he died. And that's the case that took me all the way to the Supreme Court. So that's your background. What went through your head when you read the draft opinion that leaked this spring that suggests the Supreme Court might be about to overturn Roe versus Wade? Well, my immediate reaction was what a dark day for people in our nation and their privacy and their right to control their body and to make their decisions, their medical decisions, in the absence of government. But then reading the draft in more detail to see some of the justification, some of the rationale in that decision that Justice Alito is using just honestly scares me for marriage equality. You know, there's there are things in this this leaked decision that concern me about so many things that relate to the LGBTQ plus community, as well as interracial marriage and more. Just explain for people what the link is that you see. The Supreme Court is poised to rule on abortion, which has nothing to do with same-sex marriage. What is it that has you so concerned? My concern in this leaked decision and why I'm worried about marriage equality is the language in this decision, which says the rights that we enjoy as Americans that are not specifically written out word for word in the Constitution, the right to privacy, the right to marry. This leaked decision says, well, if those unenumerated rights will continue as what we consider fundamental rights, 
then they have to be based in our nation's history and tradition. That's a very dangerous thing because marriage equality is only seven years old, not even seven years old. That is not a long history. It's certainly not the tradition of our nation. It sounds like you read this very closely. So you will have seen that Justice Alito anticipated uh, this concern and, and says specifically, look, we're only talking about abortion. The direct quote is, we emphasize that our decision concerns the constitutional right to abortion and no other right. Again, that's from the draft opinion that leaked. I honestly take no comfort in that. I'm not sure I believe that. The decision to deny a woman's right to control her body, okay, that specific decision does not apply to marriage equality. But when that decision includes language that says history and tradition are important for non-enumerated rights and we can only interpret the Constitution as of the time it was written, well, those things clearly can be used against not just marriage equality, but all types of equality for the LGBTQ plus community. What is the conversation in the LGBTQ community? You've, you've continued to advocate on these issues as people can, can gather from what you're saying. Is there widespread fear or people mobilizing for to fight again? There is definitely widespread fear, but it's also one of those things where I consider my job right now to help educate people, to help them understand why they should be concerned, why they should be afraid and why they shouldn't just think, well, that, that really isn't going to happen. It could happen, and people need to believe that it could happen. So there's fear, but people are also thinking, well, what can we do? And what we can do is get involved at the state level, because we're really going to have to rely on states to confirm, to protect, to affirm some of these rights that are at risk with the Supreme Court. I'm thinking of your husband, who you lost, and I wonder what you would want him to know about this moment, how you would explain it to him. Oh, Mary Louise, I'm not sure I could explain it to anyone, but I flip this question around and I think, what, what would John be saying right now? And John would be saying, can't we all just get along? Can't we be decent people? Can't we be decent human beings? How did Jim's and my marriage impact anyone, any other marriage? The answer is it didn't. I think John would be disheartened by, by what's happening in, in our nation currently. We've been speaking with Jim Obergefell. He was the plaintiff in the landmark case Obergefell v. Hodges that established a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mary Louise. I appreciate the time today. Eulalio Diaz Jr. got a life-changing call eight days ago. It was his turn to be the on-duty judge for traffic and small claims court in Uvalde, Texas. Now, the county is so small that the on-duty judge also acts as the coroner. And when a gunman massacred 19 children and two teachers at Robb Elementary School, that job fell to Diaz. NPR's Vanessa Romo spoke with him. Diaz says he will never be the same. And just a warning, this story contains descriptions of violence. Eulalio Diaz was going about his business in his office at the Uvalde County Courthouse last week, just like normal. Then a Facebook alert popped up that said there was an active shooter at Robb Elementary School. 
Moments later, Diaz heard sirens. They wailed past his window and kept wailing for roughly two hours. It's a small town. Rumors start kind of going around. People kept calling me, going, have they called you for anything? Do you know what's going on? And Diaz didn't until the district attorney called, asking him to go to the school. And uh, I was informed at that time that there was probably roughly 16 to 17 victims in the school, and most of them were children. So again, at that time, you cannot believe what you're hearing. Soon, he found out it was even worse. 19 children and two teachers had been shot and killed. The case was so grisly and so unlike anything Diaz had ever faced, he called the chief medical examiner in San Antonio for help. While he waited for her to make the 80-some mile drive to Uvalde, Diaz sat in his car and tried to steal himself. And of course, you know, just putting my, my head in the right frame of mind because you know it's going to be a tough scene. But nothing could have prepared him for what was waiting for him inside the school the same school that he himself had attended as a child. It's something you never want to see. It's a picture that's going to stay in my head forever, and that's where I like for it to stay. Diaz won't share anymore in order to spare others the burden. What he does say is that the process of identifying the children was gory and agonizing. The AR-15, the weapon the gunman used at Robb Elementary, is designed to blow targets apart. Unfortunately, Diaz has now seen firsthand what such a weapon does to small children. The rangers, the police, were getting with the families to gather pictures, maybe what they were wearing. Diaz says those details were crucial to identifying the disfigured bodies. Diaz also had to confront another chilling discovery at Robb Elementary. Among the dead, still lying on the floor, was an old classmate of his, Irma Garcia. She's one of the two teachers killed that day. She was one year younger than me through junior high and high school. Diaz also knew her husband, Joe Garcia. Years ago, they worked together at the only grocery store in town. Two days after his wife Irma was shot, Garcia died of a heart attack. When Diaz heard the news... At that point, I was just devastated. Now I feel terrible for the family. It just keeps getting worse and worse. Back in his office, a few days after the shooting, Diaz held his head in his hands at the end of another long day. Right now, I still got some work to do. I'm going to try to ensure that the families, that everybody gets what they need. Then I'm going to seek some assistance and seek some help because even though we're professional and we take care of this, this affects, this affects you. Funerals for the children and the two teachers that Diaz helped identify continue. He says the medical examiner's report that will help provide a clearer picture of what happened during the massacre won't be available for another three months at least. Vanessa Romo, NPR News. When officials opened a federal penitentiary in Thompson, Illinois, they claimed it would be safer than the facility it replaced. But new reporting by NPR and the Marshall Project reveals that the newest federal prison is also one of the deadliest. Violence between inmates, harsh tactics by guards, and untreated mental illness. Hear all the findings on today's Consider This podcast from NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, hurricane season is up and running. 
And the Johnny Depp Amber Heard celebrity trial comes to an end. In Wall Street news, a downward start to the new month on the street. The Dow fell about a half percent, 177 points, to close at 32,813. S&P lost three-quarters of a percent to close at 4,101. The Nasdaq lost nearly three-quarters of a percent to end the day at 11,994. Massachusetts Lottery is changing the time of its in-state drawings. The lottery says this will make it easier for players to watch the results live. Beginning June 15th, midday daily numbers will be drawn at 2 p.m., that's instead of 12.47. Evening daily game, Mass Cash, and Megabucks Doubler games will move to 9 o'clock instead of 7.47. Times for interstate drawings, including Powerball and Mega Millions, will not change. It's 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek. CitysideSubaru.com. Boston Red Sox look to bounce back from last night's loss to the Cincinnati Reds. Their two-game series ends tonight at Fenway Park. Garrett Whitlock takes the mound for Boston. Hunter Green for the Reds. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management. Committed to impact investing and building socially responsible investment portfolios for 25 years. Zevin.com slash WBUR. And Boston Ballet presenting Swan Lake, an iconic and beloved ballet, live May 26th through June 5th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Should be wet overnight tonight. Temperatures right around 55 degrees, not too far from where it is right now. For tomorrow, should be dry, but lots of clouds around. Could make it to the mid-60s. More rain on Friday. Then sunshine moves in just in time for the weekend. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A verdict today in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial that has, perhaps unexpectedly, captivated people around the world. Millions of viewers were watching this afternoon on TV and online as the jury filed back into the courtroom to deliver their decision. Among those watching was NPR's Netta Ulubi. Hey, Netta. Hi, how are you doing? Hey, I'm fine. All right. So what was it? What's the verdict? Well, the jury sided with Johnny Depp, resoundingly so. Now, both actors were actually found to have been defamed, but if you're just judging by the dollar figures, Depp clearly came out ahead. Over the course of this case, both movie stars accused each other of multiple forms of domestic and sexual violence, ranging from cutting off a finger to leaving unspeakable things in a bed. Of course, at issue was a 2018 op-ed written by Amber Heard that was published in the Washington Post. That was the basis of this lawsuit from Depp, whether Heard had defamed him in the piece that ran from the Post. And we've got a little tape from the courtroom, which, by the way, was surprisingly less packed today. Here's part of the verdict being read where Amber Heard's op-ed is being quoted. Quote, I spoke up against sexual violence and faced our culture's wrath. That has to change. End quote. Do you find that Mr. Depp has proven all the elements of defamation? Answer, yes. 
So Mary Louise, you might find that surprising, that that quote was seen as defamatory. Mm. Another quote that was ruled as being in Depp's favor was, I quote, I had the rare vantage point of seeing in real time how institutions protect men accused of abuse. Over and over, the jury ruled that statements like those were defamatory and that Heard had acted with actual malice. Hmm. Um, a question about the size of what has been awarded, because there was uh, some speculation that, that you know, it might be as small as a dollar, something symbolic. Johnny Depp got way more than that. He got way more. The jury awarded Johnny Depp a grand total of $15 million, $10 million in compensatory damages, and $5 million in punitive damages. And Depp, by the way, was not even in the courtroom. He's in the UK performing with the musician Jeff Beck, so it's possible he was confident about how this would turn out. And he, by the way, released a statement to NBC News that reads, quote, I hope that my quest to have the truth be told will have helped others, men or women, who have found themselves in my situation and that those supporting them never give up. Not a total victory to Johnny Depp, though. You said both of these actors were found to have been defamed? Right. Heard complained, uh, sorry, Heard claimed that Depp's lawyer had publicly accused her of making up allegations of abuse. And so the jury ruled with Heard on one of three claims of defamation, so just one. She was awarded $2 million in compensatory damages in that suit. It should be noted, Mary Louise, that Heard has been the target of extreme internet vitriol during this trial. She posted on Instagram shortly after the verdict was read, and she said, I'm heartbroken that the mountain of evidence still was not enough to stand up to the disproportionate power, influence, and sway of my ex-husband. I'm even more disappointed with what this verdict means for other women. Um, What does it mean for the two of them? What's next? Because this happened in a Virginia court, Johnny Depp will only receive 350000 of the $5 million he was awarded in punitive damages. And I'm not entirely sure what Amber Heard's options are as for legal recourse, but this is a blow for an actress who has far less power in Hollywood than Johnny Depp. You could hear a lot of his fans outside the courtroom. They've been there for weeks cheering and chanting as the verdict was read. He said he wanted to ruin her. He's made a great deal of progress. And Pierre's Netta Ulibi. Thank you, Netta. You're welcome. Hurricane season starts today, and forecasters with NOAA say the Atlantic hurricane season for the seventh year running will be busier than usual. That's especially a concern for people who live in the southeast and along the Gulf Coast. But the threat of hurricanes, climate change, and rising seas is not discouraging development along the coasts. NPR's Greg Allen reports that Mexico Beach, a Florida town almost totally destroyed by a hurricane nearly four years ago, is coming back. It was in October of 2018 when Hurricane Michael made landfall near Mexico Beach with 160 mile per hour winds and a 17 and a half foot storm surge. It was a category five hurricane, one of the most powerful storms ever to hit the US. Tom Wood says when he arrived a few days later, he was astonished by what he didn't see. Everything on the beach side, on that side and this side was gone. And what wasn't gone was so damaged by water on this place. We had water up to the doorknobs of the second floor. 85% of the buildings in Mexico Beach were destroyed in the storm, including Woods Beachside Hotel, the Driftwood Inn. Three and a half years later, the mountains of debris are gone, and rebuilding is well underway. Next month, the new Driftwood Inn will be welcoming guests, one of the first major businesses to reopen there since the storm. Wood is proud of what he and his family have done, rebuilding a Mexico Beach landmark. This is the gift shop. A lot of the paintings are my paintings. Oh, yeah, so this is one of yours? Yeah. Wood is 82 now. He's owned the Driftwood for nearly a half century and has turned over operations to his daughter, Shauna. 
They say rebuilding in town was slow to get started, but is really picking up. Our individual houses is coming back tenfold. Our bank was the first thing to come back. Then shortly after that, gas station, but it was probably two years in. COVID didn't help. It made it hard to find workers, caused supply problems, and pushed up building costs. Construction here was also put on hold until the town revised its building code. The new Driftwood Inn sits six feet higher than the old one and is built to withstand a Category 4 hurricane. I asked Wood what would happen if there's another Hurricane Michael, a Category 5 storm. I don't know. We had to do things like put uh, hurricane-proof windows in it. We had to be up, put pylons down. So will it hold up? I think it would hold up, but it'll be a lot of damage. Mexico Beach has adopted one of the toughest building codes in Florida. Al Cathy, the longtime mayor, says that was controversial. But to qualify for $100 million in federal grants, Cathy says Mexico Beach now requires new construction to be able to withstand major hurricane-force winds. And we upped it to 140 mile an hour. We didn't go to the Miami-Dade code. That's, to my knowledge, the most stringent in the country. And we also made some differences in elevation. And you can see just riding through town, our town's taller, but it should be. The hurricane and the high cost of rebuilding drove many older residents out of town. But realtor and longtime resident Kevin Krause says there are lots of newcomers. You know, it used to be called the Forgotten Coast. I don't think it's so forgotten anymore. There are two housing developments going up and a third one starting soon. Krause says the risk of living on the coast in an area that was recently leveled by a hurricane hasn't hurt home values. You know, you had some fire sales there in the beginning. That is no longer the case. Gulf front locations are going for a million, beach side or a half a million. So we are right there at the top of the market and, I, and it's still climbing. Although the new code requires buildings to be more resilient, the town retained old restrictions that rule out high-rise condo buildings and other big developments. Mayor Kathy says there's been another change since the storm. People on Florida's panhandle used to think they were unlikely to experience a direct hit from a major hurricane. That's no longer the case. When a storm gets in the Gulf, I perk up. I pay attention. I'm not a slow learner when it comes to storms anymore. <laughs> If people on Florida's panhandle needed a reminder about their vulnerability, they just got one. A week before the official start of hurricane season, meteorologists began tracking a tropical disturbance in the Gulf, one that came ashore not far from Mexico Beach. Greg Allen, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Poland and the United States have had a seesaw relationship over the years. Coming up on All Things Considered, the war in Ukraine has drawn them closer and turned Poland into an indispensable ally. Poland is doing vital work to respond to this crisis. Defense cooperation between Poland and the United States, I think it's safe to say, is closer than it's ever been. The Wartime Alliance also provides opportunities as the two nations work together on other issues. And singer Kate Bush is back thanks to the new season of Stranger Things. In the forecast, a dank evening. Showers continue tonight. Windy, a little bit cooler, about 55 degrees. Tomorrow should break into the mid-60 range as cloudy skies dominate again. No showers predicted for tomorrow, though. What weather should reappear for Friday? Highs around 61. 59 degrees now in Boston at 530. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by WeNeedAVacation.com, specializing in vacation rentals for the Cape and Islands, where vacationers book directly with homeowners. WeNeedAVacation.com. Texas used to have some of the strictest gun laws in America, but since those laws were relaxed... You've had mass shootings in Dallas, in Sutherland Springs, in Fort Hood, in Waco, in El Paso, in the White Settlement, and now in Uvalde. And I'm not even naming all of them. Texas lawmakers talk with us about the gun laws they've stripped away. On Point, tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden announced a new $700 million weapons package for Ukraine that will include high-mobility artillery rocket systems, which can accurately hit targets as far away as 50 miles. But Biden says Kiev won't use them to attack targets inside Russian territory. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. To arm Ukraine with additional capabilities and advanced weaponry, precisely what they need to defend themselves against the ongoing Russian aggression. That includes more advanced rocket systems so that they can strike key targets on the battlefield in Ukraine from longer distances. Biden and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan will meet with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg at the White House tomorrow. State lawmakers in New York are set to approve sweeping new gun control laws as the legislative session winds to a close. The tighter regulations come in the wake of deadly mass shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde, Texas. And Pierce Brian Mann has more. The U.S. Congress hasn't imposed new gun control measures following deadly mass shootings because of Republican opposition. But in Albany, Democrats hold all the political power. The package of new state gun rules expected to be finalized includes restricting purchases of AR-15-style rifles to people aged 21 and older, along with new registration rules. Also, state lawmakers say they want to limit purchases of bulletproof vests and other types of body armor. This follows an earlier restriction on sales of rifles with military-style design features and will make New York's gun laws among the toughest in the country. While Republicans lack the votes to block these changes, the new gun rules are expected to face challenges in court. Brian man, NPR News. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. The Dow down 176 points. That's down a half percent. The Nasdaq down 86 points. That's down about seven tenths of a percent. And the S&P 500 also lower down 30 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A federal jury has found a Rhode Island man guilty of killing a young mother who was celebrating her 23rd birthday at a Boston nightclub in 2019. Lewis Coleman III was convicted of kidnapping that resulted in the death of Jazzy Correa. Prosecutors say Coleman lured Correa into his car as he promised her a ride home, then sexually assaulted and strangled her. Correa's body was found in a suitcase in the trunk of Coleman's car in Delaware four days later. He faces a mandatory sentence of life in prison. We are nearing the traditional end of the peak influenza activity in Massachusetts, but a delayed flu season this year has kept the virus around longer than usual. WBR's Jack Mitchell has more. Flu typically thrives in winter, and as you would expect in early June, state data show patient visits for influenza-like illness are falling. But the rate of those visits is still higher than past flu seasons at this time of year. Dr. Daniel Karitskis leads the Infectious Disease Division at Brigham and Women's Hospital. We certainly have a very small number of cases. It's just that in terms of how the peak is forming, it's been a bit more delayed and a little bit more prolonged than in the past. 
Karitska says restrictions during the winter COVID surge put a damper on flu during its normal peak period from January to March. Federal data show influenza is the ninth leading cause of death in Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jack Mitchell. The former commanding officer of the U.S. Coast Guard's 1st District, based in Boston, is now the first woman to lead the U.S. Coast Guard and the first woman to lead a branch of the American Armed Forces. Today, Admiral Linda Fagan was sworn in as the 27th Commandant of the Coast Guard. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Red Sox game is still on for tonight. Cincinnati Reds will put Hunter Green on the mound against the Sox' Garrett Whitlock. It's the second game of a two-game series and the end of the Sox' homestand. Wet weather continues tonight in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, cloudy and dry up around 64. Friday showers, especially in the first part of the day. Highs around 60. For the weekend, sunny right around 70. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The United States has announced another round of military aid for Ukraine, $700 million in weaponry, including an advanced long-range missile system. Well, this brings the total amount of military support for Ukraine so far to close to $5 billion. President Biden announced the move in a New York Times op-ed, where he also clarified America's goals in the war. And White House correspondent Scott Detrow joins me. Hey, Scott. Hey, good afternoon. Hey, so I read this op-ed with great interest because there have been a lot of questions as this war approaches the 100-day mark as to what the U.S. goal is, how it's evolving, sum up what Biden says it is. Yeah, and he has two big goals here. And, and the interesting thing, which you get to, is that at some moments there's been a bit of tension between them, right? On one hand, President Biden is framing this war in Ukraine as an existential struggle for the international rule of law between democracy and autocracy. Here is the broader context that he put this war into during a big speech in Poland about a month into the conflict. Over the last 30 years, the forces of autocracy have revived all across the globe. Its hallmarks are familiar ones. Contempt for the rule of law. Contempt for democratic freedom. Contempt for the truth itself. So on that front, Biden wrote today that he wants to ensure, as he put it, quote, a democratic, independent, sovereign and prosperous Ukraine, as well as a secure Europe. But then at the same time, Biden has a clear other goal to avoid a direct military confrontation between NATO and Russia, which is something generally viewed as, as World War Three. Well, and that second one is tricky. Biden yeah. doesn't want a war between NATO and Russia. He's holding this red line, no U.S. troops on the ground in Ukraine. But the U.S. keeps sending more weapons, keeps sending more powerful weapons, and keeps talking about how much intelligence it's providing to Ukraine to fight Russia. How are they squaring that? 
Yeah, it's the amount of money spent on weapons that keeps going up. It's also the caliber of the weapons up to today's announcement of these precise and sophisticated long-range missiles. So I asked Fiona Hill about this, and of course, many people remember her from the first Trump impeachment. But she also had a long career as a Russia expert on the National Security Council and was involved in a lot of conversations about military aid for Ukraine. And she said she does not see this as an escalation, but more of a direct response to what's happening in the war. Well, it's because of the nature of the battlefield, isn't it? I mean, look, I mean, all of this would have happened. We wouldn't be in these discussions had Vladimir Putin and the security people around him not decided to launch a full scale invasion into Ukraine. So that framing that the shift in weapons is a response to a situation on the ground is something the administration says a lot as well. You know, early on, the anti-tank shoulder filed missiles were, were key in stopping the Russian tanks from bearing down on Kyiv. Then, as, as most of the war shifted to eastern Ukraine into a more open and entrenched kind of war, these long-range artillery and missile systems have been important for the Ukrainian army. Still, is there not some case to be made that, that there is an escalation happening here on the U.S. end? I think there is. An administration official said today, talking to NPR, that the White House did make it clear to the Kremlin from before the war began that this is how it would respond. But it is important to point out that all along the administration has drawn some lines. Remember early on, Ukraine urged NATO countries to enforce a no-fly zone. The administration says no, that would effectively be a war with Russia. Uh, the White House also backed away from a plan to indirectly supply fighter jets to Ukraine. And this was interesting today. Even with this new long-range missile system, officials are repeatedly stressing the U.S. has been given assurances by Ukraine that the missiles would not be fired into Russian territory. All right. NPR White House correspondent Scott Detrow, thank you. Thank you. Poland and the U.S. have had a seesaw relationship over the years, but the war in Ukraine has drawn them closer together and then turned Poland into an indispensable ally. NPR's Frank Langfitt reports from Warsaw. Critics of the Polish government have long worried about the erosion of democracy there. Back in 2016, they accused the government of stripping the country's top court, the Constitutional Tribunal, of its independence. And when President Obama visited Warsaw, he called it out. I expressed to President Duda uh, our concerns uh, over certain actions and the impasse around the Poland's Constitutional Tribunal. As your friend and ally, uh, we've urged all parties to work together to sustain Poland's democratic institutions. This didn't bother Obama's successor, President Trump, who embraced Duda and his illiberal policies. When Biden was elected, relations cooled again, then Russia invaded Ukraine. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken went to Warsaw in March, and the tone he struck couldn't have been warmer. Poland is doing vital work to respond to this crisis. As NATO allies, defense cooperation between Poland and the United States, I think it's safe to say, is closer than it's ever been. Since the Russian invasion, Poland has become the key hub for sending humanitarian aid and billions of dollars in military equipment into Ukraine. The United States and Poland suddenly found themselves in a wartime alliance. Daniel Fried served as U.S. ambassador to Poland in the late 1990s. Poland is in somewhat the role of Great Britain in World War II, the strong base of support for American resistance to a tyrant. The Biden administration remains concerned about Poland's treatment of the media and rule of law at home. But Fried says the war provides more opportunity to work on other international issues important to the U.S. He cited a recent visit here by Laura Rosenberger. Rosenberger is the senior director for China on the National Security Council. Fried says she met with Polish officials to discuss China's inroads in Europe, a top U.S. concern. 
These kinds of consultations is a direct product of the improvement in U.S.-Polish relations, and it shows that it's not just about Russia. It's an overall strategic alliance. As for the Polish government, it wants more American troops on a permanent basis to help deter Russian forces on the other side of the roughly 530-mile border Poland shares with Ukraine. Major General Piotr Boazowicz says Poland wants the Americans to provide more capabilities. That includes sophisticated intelligence and reconnaissance systems based in the air, sea, land and space, as well as cyber systems to provide targeting info. We are talking about uh, capabilities that would allow us, obviously, first of all, to have even better uh, indications and warnings. This is also about long-range precision strikes. Basically, the capabilities that will deter as much as possible the other side from doing crazy or stupid things. Would you need a permanent base for those troops? I think this is the economical way of doing it. In fact, it's in the works. A written agreement between the two countries calls for construction of U.S. forces headquarters, multiple barracks, and a medical and dental clinic. Pavel Markevich is an analyst with the Polish Institute of International Affairs, a Warsaw think tank. During the Trump administration, Poland was very frank and forthright in saying that they want to host more U.S. troops here, and they're willing to invest in the infrastructure. And Daniel Fried, the former U.S. ambassador, says relations with the Biden administration were improving before the war. In December, President Duda vetoed a media ownership law that critics say was aimed at silencing a U.S.-owned news channel. And that move, Fried says, made it just a little bit easier for the two countries to work together when Russia invaded Ukraine two months later. Frank Langford, NPR News, Warsaw. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Look at a map of the U.S., and there is a clear line between Michigan and Indiana. But in reality, the actual border between the two states has been unsettled for decades. From member station WVPE, Jacob Lazaro explains why and what is being done to fix it. Michigan borders three states, Indiana, Wisconsin, and Ohio, and that Ohio border has been the most controversial by far. In 1835, the two sides nearly went to war for control over the Toledo Strip. And one century later, Michigan and Wisconsin went to the Supreme Court to settle a border dispute in the Upper Peninsula. But the Michigan-Indiana border is different. I called it the quiet border because nothing ever comes up. That's Jack Owens, a semi-retired surveyor who's been advocating for a modern retracing of the border for 20 years now. He says because of those past controversies, Michigan's Ohio and Wisconsin borders were resurveyed in the early 20th century and staked with durable markers of concrete or stone. In contrast, the Indiana border has not. It was last surveyed in 1827. The team placed wooden posts every mile to mark the border, recording the locations using two reference trees and any notable topographic features like lakes or streams. But those posts have long since rotted away, leaving the state border unclear. Everybody's got an idea where it is. It's just, you know, if you had to know exactly, you know, we can't tell you. Jack Owens took up the issue 20 years ago when he gathered a group of surveyors. 
One of them, John Comer, says one of the reasons a modern border survey is needed is because surveyors in 1827 were limited by equipment and the terrain. To illustrate that, he pulls out a record of an 1885 survey done to determine property lines on some land near Lake Michigan. While not along the state border, county surveyor Albert Drew still went through quite a lot, battling 25-foot-deep sand drifts and rough terrain thickly filled with trees. And therefore, I depended entirely upon the needle for my course, which would have been his staff compass. What he should have been doing is perpetuating kind of leapfrogging that line along that he couldn't see back from one to the other to push it forward. In the notes, Drew also offered some advice for future surveyors. And then he says, if it ever becomes necessary to resurvey this section, let me advise the man who undertakes it to get his life insured. John Comer says since most of the original markers are gone, a new survey can only be done through the Supreme Court or the respective state legislatures. So they began lobbying, and their efforts paid off. Indiana approved legislation to create a state boundary commission in 2009, and Michigan followed suit in 2011. But Commerce says funding for the surveys never got off the ground, and the commissions eventually dissolved. Now, there's a renewed push. Last month, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer re-established her state's border commission. Indiana did the same thing three years ago. Using a mix of technology like GPS, along with the 1827 notes, the survey will look for the locations of the original markers and set permanent mileposts to give an exact picture of where the border is. But when it's all said and done, any potential differences will not be massive. In places where the border is off, it's likely only by a few feet or a few inches. Most likely not entire houses and definitely not whole towns. So why even bother doing this? When it's your line, and especially if there's a problem, then it's very important. I mean. When I was doing a lot of private practice, people would come in and fight over inches. And even if it's just a few inches, Commerce says people should care about a properly surveyed state border as a matter of state sovereignty. For NPR News, I'm Jacob Lazaro. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up on All Things Considered, a married couple in Shanghai talks about what it's like to return to life outside their apartment now that the COVID lockdown has been lifted after two months. In the forecast, a dank start to the new month. Showers continuing tonight. Windy, a little bit cooler than it is right now. Temperatures should break into the mid-60 range tomorrow as clouds dominate again. No showers likely tomorrow. Wet weather should, though, reappear on Friday. Highs around 61. The weekend is looking sunny and nice. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington's Common Ground Revisited. Adapted by Kirsten Greenwich, directed by Melia Bensusen. This world premiere play brings Boston's history to life in the 1960s and 70s, culminating in three families' experiences in court-mandated busing. Now through June 26th at the Huntington Calderwood BCA, HuntingtonTheater.org. And Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at mparchitectsboston.com. Red Sox meet up with the Cincinnati Reds at 7-10 tonight. Their two-game series ends at a wet Fenway Park tonight. Garrett Whitlock takes the mound for Boston Hunter Green for the Reds. And stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. 
probably the thing I will remember the most negative is the a conversation with the child who's describing the events, the events of the scene, the actuality. We weren't asking what happened. They just started talking about what happened. That to me is the most, that thing I will remember. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. For two kids in Shanghai, the end of more than two months of COVID lockdowns meant a treat. Oh, look! Yay! 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 Okay, how many do you want? And where there are marshmallows, there is the possibility of Rice Krispie treats, especially if you have a surplus of Rice Krispies. When we were in lockdown, the only way to get food at that time was we had to combine with all the residents in our compound uh, into these group buys. So uh, our, our kids love cereal. And um, for whatever reason, it was incredibly hard to get cereal. We had to order uh, basically got a whole like container full of Rice Krispies, and the kids had been eating this throughout lockdown. That is Ha Chung. She and her husband, Nadav Davidai, and their kids had been holed up in their apartment in one tower of a giant complex called The Summit. We talked to them on the show a month ago, and we called them back today, the day Shanghai, a city of nearly 25 million people, was officially released from lockdown. By special request, the kids, they hit the shops. So then at lunch, we ventured out outside of our building to go shopping. So what did the city feel like just walking around on the streets? It honestly felt unreal. So a couple of days before, so on Saturday, we had um, gotten a medical pass to leave the compound to go get our vaccinations. And, you know, this pass was gold because, you know, you can go out for as long as you want and you can drive. And so we went out and we got uh, our vaccines. And then after the vaccines, we thought, okay, let's drive around. And the city of 25 million people where usually the streets are bustling was completely empty. And we were like one of the only ones on the street. And then you contrast that. So that was on Saturday with today. And it was like nothing had happened. Like... All these cars and these scooters and these people were out on the street and and the city was feeling alive again. I'm thinking about the impact um, of two months of offices being shut, of businesses being shut, of international flights being canceled. What is the conversation about the economic toll of all this? It's going to take a really long time to um, figure all of this out and the the true impact to it. The, the scale of it is, is kind of mind-boggling. In fact, I mean, it, just to give you a, a, a personalized example, we ordered things from Taobao, like an Amazon equivalent here, right? And we ordered them in, in mid-March, and they arrived, you know, a few days ago. Um, and you, you just multiply that, not only across the city, but then, you know, all the ports and the, the backflows and everything like that that went to other places in China. And, yeah, it's... It's something that, that's going to take a while to sort out for sure. 
Now, the last time we spoke with Ha and Nadav, the link to the interview was censored within hours of being posted to Chinese social media. I asked Nadav if he thought he was getting reliable information about COVID from China's government. He declined to answer that. He did say that on his morning walk, he was surprised to find the gate to the Summit Apartments flung wide open. This is the gate to your whole building compound out into the world? Right, 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 right. which was literally locked, you know, for a period of time and um, and access controlled very closely, even up to a few days ago. It was interesting because, you know, when we were eventually let out of our apartments and able to use the grounds of the compound, honestly, uh, uh, <laughs> a really good time because we were hanging out with our neighbors and the kids were playing in the gardens and we didn't have to worry about them because they couldn't leave the compound. But now... Today, (laughs) the gates were open, and the first thing I thought of was, oh my goodness, I have to keep an eye on the kids now. And I kind of almost felt like I wish (laughs) it could go back to, you know, the gates being closed and, um, and having that, plus being able to go outside and have the, you know, ability to, to, you know, shop again and have those freedoms again. Their neighbors are already nervous about the next variant, the next lockdown. But they said today everyone was just trying to enjoy the moment. And if there is a silver lining of lockdown, it's that they got to know their neighbors so much better. Ha and I, we went and we walked around the neighborhood and it was novel and it was nice. But at the end of the day, we came back into the compound that we've been locked in for two months and had drinks with people in the garden, (laughs) in, in the compound, you know. And the other thing is the guards and the cleaners and the people who worked here, they got locked in with us as well, right? And we were, we were in our, uh, our, our apartments and, and, and we had our family. They didn't. They were on their own and they didn't have, you know, their usual place to sleep. And when Hana came back this evening, we saw one of those guards getting on his scooter and leaving. You know, he, first time in, in, in 60 days, he just... He went out of the gate and uh, presumably went home, but he had this smile on his face. And uh, it was pretty amazing. Oh. We have been speaking with Ha Chong and Nadav Davidai, speaking with us from Shanghai on the first day of the official end of a two-month-long COVID lockdown. Thanks so much. Good luck to you both as you figure out what the what the world looks like now. Thanks. Thank you, Mary Louise. Some of you may be pretty familiar with the start of this tune, but now a totally different generation is getting into Kate Bush's 1985 hit, Running Up That Hill. The song has unexpectedly risen to the top of the streaming charts thanks to a popular Netflix show. That's right. Stranger Things is back for a new season. And just like in previous seasons, it is full of 80s nostalgia. Everything from Kate Bush to Sony Walkmans to scenes at the local video store. Truly Gen X heaven. (laughs) (laughs) As we can relate, Elsa. Totally. (laughs) Ever since the Netflix hit returned last week, videos featuring Running Up That Hill have been all over TikTok and Twitter. For Ann Powers of NPR Music, Kate Bush was the perfect artist for the sci-fi show to spotlight. From the beginning of her career, she was inspired by gothic literature, by fantasy, 
indeed by science fiction. She always has been fascinated with the way people transform, sometimes magically, into animals and beasts and angels. And so her music makes complete sense when connected to a show like Stranger Things. The song was originally released nearly 40 years ago on Bush's album Hounds of Love. The track was known for its classic 80s synth sound, but Ann Power said Bush's talent is what makes it special. She is that fantasist. She is that dreamer that we need at a time when reality seems bleak, but we can go amazing places in our imagination. The first half of this season's Stranger Things is out now on Netflix. And for you non-Gen Xers who don't already have it on cassette, (laughs) Running Up That Hill can be streamed. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. From Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. From Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Our afternoon showers are morphing into evening and overnight showers. Should have some gusty winds tonight. Lows about 55 degrees. For tomorrow, no showers forecast, just lots of clouds around. Should make it to the mid-50s. More rain on Friday, but sunshine moves in just in time for the weekend. Mild temperatures as well. It is 57 degrees now in the Boston area at 559. WBUR supporters include La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, Latin American fare with a modern twist, drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in Greater Boston, LaCuchara.com. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The community of Uvalde, Texas, has begun the burials of 21 people killed in the school shooting eight days ago. Police say the gunman entered through a door that a teacher had left open. Now they say that is not true. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, June 1st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a federal judge has allowed pandemic border restrictions to stay in place, but asylum seekers are still crossing, and at least one shelter is seeing record numbers. A growing number of schools are using different approaches to preventing violence on their campuses. It starts with the premise that a student contemplating violence is a student in crisis. For example, a Salem, Oregon teenager made disturbing threats to his high school on Facebook. There was enough history here to suggest that if we didn't intervene very quickly that we would have a pretty bad situation on our hands at North High. That story and much more is still to come. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. 
Russia is criticizing a U.S. decision to provide heavier weapons to Ukraine. The Pentagon saying they're for defensive purposes, but as NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow, top Russian officials view this as an escalation. Russian officials were reacting to the news that President Biden had agreed to provide Ukraine with precision rockets capable of striking Russian targets at long range. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov warned the weapons increased the risk of direct conflict between Russia and the U.S., while a Kremlin spokesman accused Washington of purposefully and diligently fueling hostilities in Ukraine. He says Moscow does not trust assurances from Kiev that the weapons would not be used to strike inside Russian territory. Russian officials have repeatedly argued that Western military aid merely delays an inevitable Russian victory in Ukraine by encouraging Kiev to seek gains on the battlefield rather than pursue peace talks. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. The White House has announced two more planned deliveries of baby formula from overseas as part of its Operation Fly formula. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, President Biden held a virtual event with formula makers to send a signal the White House is working hard on the critical shortage. The formula shortage traces back to the shutdown in February of a production plant that had accounted for a large share of the domestic supply. According to the firm Data Assembly, the out-of-stock rate on store shelves was 70 percent nationwide in the week of May 15th. Biden addressed the concerns of parents at a White House event. There's nothing more stressful than the feeling you can't get what your child needs, he or she needs. And it's why I've directed my administration to use every tool available to increase the supply, get more formula on shelves as quickly as possible. The formula makers invited to speak talked about running their facilities 24-7 to try to make up the shortfall. But restoring normalcy to the formula market is expected to take months. Tamara Keith, NPR News. A jury in Virginia has ruled in Johnny Depp's favor in a celebrity defamation trial that has dragged on for weeks. More from NPR's Ned Ullaby. At issue was an op-ed written by Johnny Depp's ex-wife Amber Heard about domestic abuse. The jury agreed with Depp that it contained statements that were false, defamatory, and written in actual malice. As against Amber Heard, we the jury award compensatory damages in the amount of $10 million. As against Amber Heard, we the jury award punitive damages in the amount of $5 million. Heard was also awarded $2 million in compensatory damages in her countersuit. Neto Ulibi. NPR News. The number of job openings fell in April, though the government says the total number of unfilled jobs still remains at significantly high levels, indicating wages may continue to rise for some time as companies scramble for workers. On Wall Street, the Dow was down 176 points. The Nasdaq fell 86 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Hundreds of local 26 union workers protested along Boylston Street in Boston this afternoon in opposition to the potential sale of the Heinz Convention Center. The Heinz is owned by the state. Governor Charlie Baker has proposed selling it as part of his economic development bill. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer has more. Supporters of the plan say selling the Heinz would fund much-needed projects in downtown Boston, like affordable housing. Proceeds would also fund an expansion of Boston's other convention center in the seaport. But Daryl Singletary, who's been working at the Heinz for 36 years, says a sale would be economically devastating for him and 200 of his colleagues. And for the state to sell the Heinz, it's going to really cripple a lot of families. Jobs are not knocking on your door when you're 55 and 50 plus paying you the money that we're getting now. So people, a lot of people are definitely nervous about them selling the Heinz. The legislature would need to approve Baker's proposal before any sale could take place. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. 
A Newton doctor has agreed to a settlement with the state and federal authorities for prescribing narcotics to 51 patients without checking their prescription histories. The attorney general's office says Dr. Hung Chang Poor prescribed the drugs while working at the Stonehenge Rehabilitation and Skilled Care Center in West Roxbury. State law requires prescribers to review a state database intended to prevent drug abuse and addiction. Poor will pay $100,000 and enter a compliance monitoring program. A state legislative committee voiced concern today over a proposed east-west passenger rail service. Some lawmakers say Governor Charlie Baker's nearly $10 billion uh, infrastructure bond bill is missing details about creation of a rail authority to oversee the project. Funding would rely heavily on federal grants that the state must match. Legislative leaders have given no indication on when they intend to bring the bill up for a vote. And the North Atlantic hurricane season is officially underway as of today. The Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency has been conducting preparation exercises with other states and local communities. MEMA spokesman Chris Bessie says coastal residents can find out if they live in an area that's prone to flooding so they can properly prepare. The state has hurricane evacuation zones. Uh, we have maps and resources on our website, mass.gov MEMA. Uh, but people can can use that to kind of determine their risk and therefore the fact that they may need to evacuate if there was a significant uh, storm or hurricane coming up the coast. Bessie says only one hurricane affected the state last summer when Henri moved up the coastline before it finally shifted inland. In the forecast, pretty cloudy overnight tonight. Showers off and on, temperatures holding to the mid-50s. Clouds press on tomorrow should be drier and a little bit warmer, up around 65 degrees. Rain is likely on Friday. Highs about 60, and then we should have sunshine moving in for the weekend. 57 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. WBUR supporters include the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at WTGrantFDN.org. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The story of what happened in Uvalde, Texas, leading up to and during a mass shooting that killed 19 children and two adults, well, it's a story that keeps on changing. In the last couple days, there have been new developments and prior law enforcement statements are being walked back. NPR's Laura Benchoff is in Uvalde and brings us the latest. Hi, Laura. Hi, Elsa. So I want to talk first about how this gunman got into the school. Like the original story was that a teacher had left a back door open, right? What do we know now about that? Right. At a press conference last Friday, the Texas Department of Public Safety had said the gunman entered Robb Elementary through a door that this teacher had left something in to keep it from locking behind her. Now they're saying that's not true. DPS confirmed to NPR that video footage showed the teacher running back inside and closing the door. Mm. She's hired an attorney named Don Flannery to speak on her behalf. And here's how he relays her version of what happened after she saw the gunman crash his car near the school. And then she looks over and sees him throw a backpack over the fence and then sees him with the AR-15 slung over his shoulder sees him hop the fence and start running towards her. So she immediately ran back inside, kicked the rock out and slammed the door. So state officials confirmed that and now they're saying that the door did not lock as it was supposed to behind her. Wow, very different story. Okay, so can you tell us anything more about this teacher? I know her name hasn't been released, but what else do we know about her experience that day? 
you know, Flannery shared that she's also a victim, that she hid terrified in a classroom across the hall from where the gunman had shot and killed so many people, and that she was there to hear it all. So she was there and she had family members in the school. Her grandson attended Robb Elementary School, and so she was fearful for his safety as well the whole time. And Flannery wanted to share that, you know, getting kind of wrongly blamed just at first for letting the gunman in just made things worse for her. She was devastated because in addition to everything she's going through, even the suggestion that of something that's false, it's insult to injury, you know? Yeah, I imagine so. Well, you know, Laura, all of this gets at the lasting harm these changing statements from law enforcement can cause. And I mean... State officials originally praised the local law enforcement response, but then days later started blaming the local school police for mishandling it. And now I understand that they have accused the chief of that police force of not cooperating. That's right. The Texas Department of Public Safety shared a statement with NPR saying that all of the local law enforcement is cooperating with their investigation, except they say the school district police chief, Pete Arredondo, has not responded to a request for a second interview for their investigation. This is after the DPS director, Stephen McCraw, said last week Arredondo made the wrong decision to not enter the classroom where the gunman was more quickly. But here's the chief just this morning after he was confronted by a CNN reporter saying that they've been in touch. We've been in contact with DPS every day, just so you all know. They say, every not, day. They say that you're not cooperating. I've, I've been on the phone with them every day. So this investigation is ongoing. And, you know, at the same time, the funerals are still happening here. That is NPR's Laura Benchoff in Uvalde. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. So the school shooting in Uvalde has once again left many people asking, how do we prevent the next one? And while lawmakers debate new gun policies as a solution, many school districts have been working hard to steer young people away from violence. Youth like Mishka, a young man in Salem, Oregon, who had made disturbing threats to his high school on social media, were not going to use his full name to protect his privacy. As NPR Ritu Chatterjee reports, the intervention had turned Mishka around, offers hope for other trouble kids. Back in 2011, psychologist John Van Drill got a phone call from Oregon's North Salem High School. It was an assistant principal telling him that a student had written an angry, violent Facebook post. There were a number of statements about hitting people with pipes, breaking knees, uh, bashing heads with pipes, looking for help in doing so. And then there was this. North Salem High School, seriously, it's asking for a shooting or something. Vandril's job is to keep schools safe. He directs the Safety and Risk Management Program for Salem-Kaiser Public Schools. He says he knew of this kid. Mishko was, uh, was known to be pretty aggressive and combative. There was enough history here to suggest that if we didn't intervene very quickly that we would have a pretty bad situation on our hands at North High. By the time Vandriel arrived at the school that day, police officers had already pulled Mishka out of class. I'm in handcuffs surrounded by police. I got searched several times. And they asked the 17-year-old lots of questions. The police started asking me questions like, hey, so what's going on? What's happening? They asked me, like, like, was I actually intending to do something? And it's like, nope, just blowing off steam. Mishka was angry, really angry. That's because he says two of his friends had been jumped by some jocks. My buddies got beat up, quite literally, they got beat up. My buddies got suspended for that. 
He thought this was unfair. He says his friends didn't start the fight. And in his Facebook post, he was trying to avenge them. Vandril knew that to calm Mishka down, he had to see the world through his eyes. He's the one justifying the violence, and I have to get behind that and see why. He learned that Mishka's struggle started way back in middle school. One day, Mishka says, a kid tried to pick a fight. As I was turning around and saying, dude, I don't want to fight, he takes a swing and hits me directly in my eye where everything just went black for a moment. Like, and I got mad and it turned into a physical fight. That was probably the first time I actually punched a person. His right eye was severely damaged. He says the next two years, he was in and out of surgery. I started failing majority of my classes. I wasn't able to follow along. I was I literally had to stand up like a foot away from the what's on the board because everything was just a haze. Like I couldn't see anything. Eventually, he says he lost all sight in that eye. And the attacks on him, they continued. In seventh grade, Mishka says a group of boys jumped him. He says he told the school which students did it, and they were suspended. But when they came back, they got even more of their buddies. And on the way home, I literally just got bluntly attacked and just I was literally just laying there in the dirt and the mud and I was getting kicked like I was a soccer ball. He says he ended up with an abdominal injury and more surgery. That is actually like the point where I was like done with everything and everyone. I'm like, none of you could protect me, so I don't care about what you guys see. I don't care about your rules, whether you're wearing a police uniform, a military, whether you're the president or God himself. And that's where I became, like, a loose cannon. Mishka spent his high school years getting in one fight after another. He saw himself as a victim who was going to pay some people back so that this injustice didn't continue. And that's that righteous indignation that can drive these kinds of assaults. Then came senior year and that Facebook post. North Salem High School, seriously. It sounded like a serious threat. But Vandriel and his team realized that Mishka had no intentions of shooting anyone. Still, he was angry and volatile. Vandriel listened to Mishka when he explained why. Teachers weren't reaching out to kids who needed the help. There weren't the connections. There was the pecking order and the injustice. They decided to give Mishka another chance and moved him to a smaller school, Roberts High, where teachers gave him the attention and help he wanted and where he found his first real mentor, Stanley Roberts, a behavioral analyst at the school. Roberts says he remembers Mishka in those early days. A kid shy and hiding. Didn't say much. He just walked through the hall with his head down. Didn't want to be noticed. Maybe hurting. And it's like, well, hey, let's talk. Roberts invited him to stop by his office anytime. And Mishka did. At first, he was hesitant. Started out a young boy, a young man trying to prove himself. And I think it was just more of a, you know, where do I fit in? Always having to fight and just being angry at, you know, at the world, it's not fair. And I just listened. Then after a while, Robert started pushing back. Did Mishka want to be that guy who's angry and fighting all the time? Is this what you want? No. Um, Well, what do you want? Why? can't just walk away from it. I'm like, but as you get older, you can. You don't have to stay in that. Roberts helped Mishka find other ways to solve his problems. 
it was like having his own personal coach. Somebody to be there for, uh, like, if I do need to turn, like, hey, what do I do now? Knowing that there is going to be somebody there saying, hey, this is what you do now. Mishka graduated from high school on time. Today he has a full-time job and enjoys baking when he isn't working. He's far from the angry kid he used to be. John Van Drill has worked with over a thousand at-risk kids, collaborating with families, police, schools, mental health professionals. He says this is how you move kids away from violence, through safe environments, connections, role models. Moving kids from despair to hope. That's the bumper sticker for what we do. Is that all it takes? It sounds like almost too simplistic to be true. Well, it is not. It really works. After the school shooting in Parkland, Florida in 2018, Congress designated money to set up more programs like this in schools around the country. Ritu Chatterjee, NPR News. As the British public celebrates Queen Elizabeth's 70 years on the throne, many are looking towards the future and the next monarch, Prince Charles. Listen tomorrow afternoon to hear why his treatment of Princess Diana and his past reputation for meddling in public issues has earned him many detractors. Tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. On Wall Street, a downward start to the new month. The Dow fell about a half percent, or 177 points, to close at 32,813. S&P lost three-quarters of a percent to close at 41.01. The Nasdaq lost nearly three-quarters of a percent to end the day at 11,994. More business news coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. And the Arlington Chamber and Mass Office of Travel and Tourism. Enjoy Arlington's cultural district with shopping, dining, theaters, and more. Details at visitarlingtonma.org. The New England Aquarium and Boston-based Blue Tech Business opened applications today for a third round of funding for early-stage entrepreneurs working on ocean sustainability and global resilience. Each startup will receive $50,000 to help them get off the ground. Applications close July 8th. And the gym in downtown Brockton, where boxing champion Marvelous Marvin Hagler used to practice, is being transformed into a luxury apartment building. Mass Development announced today it has provided $6.5 million in loans to transform the vacant historic four-story building that used to house the Petronelli Gym. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Picasso, a modern way to buy and co-own a second home. Picasso brings buyers together, then manages the home. Listings at pacaso.com. Wet weather persists tonight in the mid-50s, tomorrow cloudy and dry, up around 64 degrees, and then Friday showers, especially for the first part of the day, highs around 60. 57 degrees now in Boston. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
And I'm Elsa Chang. The civil war in Syria may have dropped from the headlines, but after more than a decade, it is still not over. Today, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, is near the Syrian border in Turkey. She's there to remind the world that there are still millions of people inside Syria who depend on U.N. aid. The government of Bashar al-Assad has retaken most of the country, but a few million people still live in an opposition-controlled region near the Turkish border. NPR's Michelle Kellerman is traveling with the ambassador and joins us from southern Turkey. Hey, Michelle. Hi there. So can you talk more about what prompted Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield to take this trip now in particular? So there's a deadline next month for the U.N. Security Council to renew an aid program from Turkey to Syria. We're talking about hundreds of trucks a day, food, medicine, and other supplies that cross a part of the Syrian border that's controlled by opposition forces. Syria's government opposes this aid route, calling it a breach of sovereignty. Russia, which has veto power on the Security Council, is an ally of Syria, so it could block this aid route when it comes up for a vote next month. And U.S. officials say that could cut off, you know, about four million Syrians that really depend on these U.N. aid shipments. And by the way, they can't rely on the Syrian government and Russia aiding them because those countries have a record of trying to starve out opposition areas in the country. Okay, well, who has Thomas Greenfield been meeting with while she's been on the ground there? So, so far, she's been meeting mostly with Syrian refugees, including um, an aid group known as the White Helmets. She's also met with some small business owners from Syria. The ambassador says she heard some similar concerns from many of them today. Take a listen. The main message is uh, we are hearing from our relatives inside of Syria. Uh, They are. Uh, suffering, and we don't want to be forgotten. And I think the message they have heard from me is that we have not forgotten uh, Syria, and that's why I'm here. And by the way, she was speaking there inside this sweet shop run by three Syrian brothers. There was baklava and other amazing Mm. sweets piled high behind (laughs) her. Yes, we got a taste of it. (laughs) And Thomas Greenfield was making a point of showing that refugees can contribute to countries like Turkey. That's an important message because a lot of Turkish citizens are growing weary of hosting so many refugees when the economy is in turmoil. Well, you mentioned that she met members of the White Helmets. This is the rescue group that operates in opposition areas and has received backing from the U.S. in the past. And I'm curious, what was their message to the ambassador and to the rest of the world? Well, they worry that Ukraine is taking the focus off of Syria. We spoke to one board member, Amara Al-Samu, who says that Russian troops are doing the same things in Ukraine as they did in Syria. Just take a listen. It's connected, I think. The, the war in Syria and the war, war in Ukraine is connected. It's one war against a human being, against people who want uh, their, their dignity, who want their freedom. This is one war. So now the question is whether Russia is going to allow aid to flow into Syria from Turkey for another year. It's going to be a big challenge for U.N. diplomats. There's another concern, Elsa, and that is about a potential Turkish offensive against Kurdish forces in northern Syria. That's just a reminder of how complicated this war is and how tenuous the situation is. That is NPR's Michelle Kellerman on the Turkey-Syria border. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you.
Now let's turn to Title 42. It's the pandemic border restriction President Trump implemented two years ago to block most migration from Mexico. The Biden administration tried to lift it, but a federal judge recently ordered the policy to stay in place. Even so, the border is not totally closed. Asylum seekers are still crossing, and at least one shelter for them in Arizona is seeing record numbers. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports. Ever since he was a boy in the border city of Nogales, Santa Cruz County Sheriff David Hathaway says people have been crossing over looking for a better life. Only recently has this become red meat for national politicians. You know, over past multiple years, caravans staging in Mexico and they're heading this way and they're going to rush across the border and it's going to be a mass invasion. It's never materialized the way they describe it. Today in this high desert, it's quiet. There you go, that's Mexico right there. Hathaway is a former DEA agent in Nogales and in South America, but he dresses more like the Old West. Cowboy hats, suspenders, keychain dangling off his belt. Down this dirt road, he points to a section of newer border fence with its coils of razor wire dangling off the American side. Construction stopped when Donald Trump left office. So then it kind of just went back to this vehicle barrier type fencing that anybody can just walk through. You could just walk right under that. And people are. Under Title 42, most Mexicans and Central Americans who are caught are sent back immediately, but there are exceptions. 70 miles to the north, the Casa Alita shelter in Tucson is seeing a record number of asylum seekers, even a few days after a federal judge kept the closures at southern ports of entry in place. And the reason we're registering you is so that we can take you to the airport or to the bus station and help you with 375 people are arriving today. They look exhausted. They're drinking water and carrying their belongings in plastic bags. The shelter's director, Teresa Cavendish, says it's probably the first time they've felt safe in ages. Something caused them to leave their homes. Whatever that something was, was traumatic and, and dangerous to them. And then they've spent time on the U.S.-Mexico border, a very unsafe space to be in. There's a lot of global instability and violence, especially since the pandemic. And Cavendish is preparing this shelter to handle up to 1,000 people a day. We are continuing to move forward. This, this pause in Title 42, we believe is just that, a pause. Most of the people arriving here now are from countries like Cuba, Venezuela, and Colombia, where immigration authorities cannot easily return them to their home countries or to Mexico. Speaking through an interpreter, Wilmar Romero says he had to leave Colombia because an armed gang made a threat to his family. They flew to Mexico City, then it was a three-day bus ride to Mexicali, then they crossed at a known gap in the border fence near Yuma, Arizona. Romero's story is typical according to aid workers. Once he crossed, he waited to surrender at a place the Border Patrol tends to pick migrants up and eventually was brought to this shelter. A lot of the humanitarian support here is coming from federal funding, much of which is set to run out at the end of next month. Regina Romero is the mayor of Tucson. I'm concerned that Congress will not allocate funding for a mess in terms of of a broken immigration system that they refuse to fix. Romero says it's ironic that Republicans sued to keep a public health order in place. For example, Attorney General Brnovich here of Arizona was fighting cities like Tucson when we were instituting uh, public health measures to protect our communities from COVID-19. The Republican AG declined interview requests, but in a statement called the judge's ruling keeping Title 42 in place a win. 
Back in Nogales, Santa Cruz County Sheriff David Hathaway says Title 42 is only adding to the backlog of asylum cases in U.S. courts. If someone at the cabinet level and the Biden administration heard this, that's what I would say. Get the deciding officials that make these decisions right at the border, have a line where they immediately decide the cases. The Biden administration has just launched a small program to start doing that, but it may not survive a court challenge. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Nogales. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Clouds and showers continuing tonight. Temperatures holding steady in the mid-50s. Clouds press on tomorrow. Should be drier and a little bit warmer, up around 65. Rain is likely again on Friday. Highs about 60. Nice wet seats at Fenway tonight. Reds and Red Sox have a 7-10 start time for the second game in their two-game series. Garrett Whitlock pitches for Boston. Hunter Green for Cincinnati. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theatre, presenting a toe-tapping, good-time musical, Woody Says, The Life and Music of Woody Guthrie, June 8th through 26th, mrt.org. And Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 6th. Semesteroff.com.